Tariyag Mitzvot. And we're up to the 74th Mitzvah. It's a negative commandment. Shelo Lishmawa Ta'anat Ba'aldin. Shelo Bifne Ba'aldino. This is a law that applies to the judges and the courts. And the law says that a judge is not allowed to hear the claim of one of the litigants unless it's in front of the one that he's claiming against. And they learn it from a pasuk in Perech Gimal, pasuk Aleph, lo tisa shema shav, that you're not allowed to put yourself in a situation where you're going to hear something that is false. Now why is it necessarily false if the person is giving his claim not in front of the other person? So the Sefer Achinuk tells us, We know that people will lie, or more prone to lie, if they don't have somebody that they're claiming against. They make up a story, but if they're speaking in front of somebody, person doesn't have the, the arrogance to lie in front of the person. That the judge is not allowed to accept something that might be untruthful. And having a person testify without the Ba'aldin against him, without his counterpart that he's claiming against him, is almost certain going to lead to a lie. Now this pasuk of Lotisa Shem Ashab is other laws that we learn. Another law that we learned from this is, is let's say the judge says, I'm willing to hear your claim alone. When the judge says, I'm listening, I don't have a problem with it. So the litigant has a sued to give the claim to the judge if his ba'aldin, if the other guy is not uh, present. Furthermore, it is from this law that we learn as well that uh, in generally speaking, one should keep away from anything that is connected to sheker, anything that's remotely connected to lying, as the pasuk says, midebar sheker terhak. We must distance ourselves from not only blatantly lying, but from situations that can lead to lying, like this case over here. Now, this isur of lotisa shem ashab also includes the big story of the laws of lashon hara that one is not allowed to speak uh, derogatorily or hear and accept derogatory information. Now in this mitzvah, the Sivir Ainu tells us the shoresh, the root of this mitzvah, and it's an unbelievable piece to remind us how important it is to be truthful and be people of emet. I'd like to quote you some of the highlights of what the Sivir Ainu writes in this shoresh. Again, it's a classic. He says, because when it comes to lying, lying is something that's nit'ab. Nit'ab means it's abominable. There's nothing more disgusting than the lie. And one that engages in lies, those that love the lie and embrace it, their home is filled with curse. And he goes on to say, 
God is emet. God is truthful. And anything that's connected to God is emet. He says an amazing rule. Somebody wants the beracha to be with him, so you have to model Hashem's ways. It's almost as if we attract the beracha of Hashem when we are like Hashem. And he says, God is emet. And therefore when he's emet, we bring the beracha upon us. Furthermore, when we are merachem, when we are merciful, when we do kindness to others, but if somebody adopts upon himself the opposite practices of God, where he's a shakran, he's a liar, and he's not a gomel chesed, and he's not compassionate, so he will bring down exactly the opposite of the midot of Hashem, which means you attract the way you behave. And then he says, God forbid a person will attract himself the opposite of Beracha. The opposite of all things that are good. He says, not only shouldn't you lie, but you have to distance yourself a lot as it says, and it's the Chinook that reminds us the Iskir why is the Torah saying when it comes to Sheket, distance yourself, because it's so disgusting. Which the Torah never writes the word, only when it comes to Sheket. That we shouldn't uh, be drawn to it at all. That can lead to sheker. Now, even though in this case over here, when you're hearing a claim of one litigant, not in front of the, you're not for sure that he's talking sheker, it's not guaranteed, but you have to be a hawk. You can't even put yourself in a situation that, like we said, is prone to sheker. Furthermore, the, uh, the Rav writes, that go check in the Gemara throughout Shas how many places the Gemara praises the honest judge and how much places the, the Gemara uh, has uh, derogatory things to say about the judge that goes after Shekin. From these claims he says in the Talmud, you see the importance of an honest judge. This mitzvah applies bechol makom in all places at all times. Now, it applies to males partly because when we're looking at it from the standpoint of the judge, so judges can only be males. So therefore, the suit of the judge, the male judge, is not to accept one litigant's claim not in front of the other. However, regarding the one that's giving the claim, that applies to ladies as well. That a lady would not be allowed to give a claim to a judge if the one that she's claiming against is not in front of the judge. And furthermore, clearly ladies are obligated to keep away from sheker, just like the men are obligated to keep away from sheker. If somebody transgresses and lies 
or does any of these Isurim and Betin has transgressed a negative commandment. However, it's considered a lav she'en bo ma'aseh. It's verbal, and therefore there's no malkut. Rabotai, this underscores to us how important it is to speak the truth and to measure our words before they come out of our mouths. Are they following the truth of the midah Kadosh baruchu, which is midat ha'emet? A person has to be careful to try to be as accurate as he is in his lashon. When he doesn't know, he has to say he doesn't know. When he's not sure, he has to say he's not sure. And not just to throw out simple words that will lack the accuracy of emet. We're up to number 75. And that is the love. Talking about over here, you have a, uh, a witness that testifies in Bedin. So the Bedin is not allowed to accept testimony from somebody that is Bal'avera or let's say unqualified. As the Pasuk says in Mishpatim, again, Perechav Gima, Pasuk Aleph, Al Tashet Yadecha Im Rasha' Lihiyot Ed Hamas. So we're talking about an Ed over here that's Hamas, that's involved in Hamas, which is thievery, that's one of the Averot. Am I not allowed to help him? Don't stretch your hand out to the Rasha in order to allow him to be an Ed. The question is, why can't a Rasha, someone that commits Averot, testify? I mean, he did see what he saw, seemingly, so why can't he come along and just uh, testify? What does what, what his religious standing have to do with the fact that he is pasul for testimony? So the Hinuk says over here, a very simple sevara. She called me she'al atzmo lo has. If a person doesn't have mercy on himself, velo yahush al ma'asab ha'ra'im. He doesn't care about the consequence that the bad deeds that he's doing, even though it's going to bring terrible consequence to him, he doesn't care about himself. Lo yahush al ahirim. So obviously he doesn't care about the consequence that will come on others. And therefore, you can't believe him. Because if a person has no mercy on himself, he's going to testify falsely. He doesn't care to bring bad or harm or damage on somebody else. Now at this point, Abotai, it's worthy just to review the 10 different pesulim. There's 10 edim that are pesulim mena Torah. Actually, the chinuch in this mitzvah lists them. Let's go through them quickly. The ten edim pesulim mena Torah. Number one, nashim pesulim ladies. Now we must be made very clear. The reason why ladies are pesulot is not because they do not have neemanut. It's not because we don't trust ladies. The proof of the pudding is we trust ladies on isur karet, which is nida that she went to the mikveh. We trust ladies in the kitchen that the food that they're serving us is kasher. So it's nothing to do with a hasaron in ne'emanut. It's a gezerat katuv negabet dinem mamonot, monetary cases and capital crimes that we don't accept ladies. Avadim, those are slaves, are also pesulim, ketanim, obviously are minors, they cannot testify. Hershim, that's a deaf mute. Now the case we're talking about over here is either that somebody can hear but can't speak, or he speaks but cannot hear, 
he's uh, uh, not uh, qualified to be a witness. A shotim, those that do not have the mental faculties. A someh, a blind person cannot testify. Now, someone might say, that's pashut. You might have thought he can testify on sound. He knows the voice, voice recognition. Kamash Balad, if he can't see, we don't accept even his testimony on voice recognition. Resha'im, apasum in Torah. We're talking about somebody that transgresses a sin that's punishable by malkut, that's lashes or death penalty, or he is uh, sinful in monetary matters. Furthermore, the uh, eighth pesul is anashim shebizuyim beyoter. People that are acting in a, uh, a low way, that they have no self-esteem, uh, and they act in a very, very cheap, low way. The chinuch, uh, or the poskim, give two examples. Mi she'ochel bashuk. Somebody that eats in the marketplace. He doesn't care, he eats in front of all people. He has no shame. Or somebody that goes in the marketplace undressed. So therefore it shows he has no kabot for himself. Furthermore, the last, or ninth, I should say, is kerovim. Relatives are asud to testify. I will point out again, the pesul of relatives is not because they're not ne'eman. Because you're not allowed to believe relatives even if they testify against their relative. So therefore, it's not not ne'emanut. Even if they're going against their relative, it's already a gezerat kadub. Even Moshe Rabbeinu cannot testify against Aharon, and no one's going to question Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, veracity. Finally, the tenth one is Mishinogeya Le'edut. Somebody that is prejudiced or biased to the testimony. For example, a soneh. Uh, somebody that we know is an arch enemy of the person that he's testifying against, mother-in-law, let's say, or, uh, like, well, you know already you have a, uh, a, a testimony that is biased or prejudiced, is not accepted. The classic case that the poskim talk about is the pesul medrabanan, the classic example of the pasul ed, the ed that's disqualified rabbinically, is the mesahek bekubia she'en lo umanut acheret. That's the gambler, what we would call him the career gambler. Well, that's what he does for a living. There's two reasons why the career gambler is pasul le'edut. Yesh omrim, some say, mishum srach gezel midivrehem. According to those that believe that gambling, even though everybody at the table accepts that whatever the consequences and the results are, they accept the laws, but they really don't accept it wholeheartedly. And therefore, we call that gezel midivrehem. And simple, this person's making a living on, 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 on theft, although rabbinical theft, but nonetheless, it's not kavod to have such a person that makes his panasa on Gezel to be a witness. That she, however, in Masichet Eruvin, on page 82, has a different sebara. He says that since this person is making easy money, so he has, does not have the value of what it means to toil to make money. And therefore, since uh, uh, he has no value or understanding of the difficulties to make a buck, so it'll be very easy for him just to lie to get somebody to lose money. He doesn't appreciate what does it mean to go to work. Somebody goes to work and understands the value of a dollar, 
So therefore he feels bad for the other guy. Not going to just uh, testify against him to take away his money. But uh, easy come, easy go. So therefore he doesn't understand it. So therefore it's easy for him to come along and uh, uh, be mafsid, to cause a loss against his friend. Of course this halakha applies in all places, at all times, but it only applies to male. Because again, this halakha is under beddin. Beddin is not allowed to accept the testimony of a and Hamas. The poskim discuss, what about the second kosher witness? Is he allowed to go with a non-kosher witness? If, or with a, with a non-kosher witness? If he goes with him, so he's aiding and abetting. He's making the edut. So does the second witness over Or does the witness himself be over That's a big question in itself. Because the witness himself is telling the truth. But he's a Eid Hamas. So therefore, the question on everybody else stands out. But today we're talking about the Betin's responsibility that if they accept testimony from an Eid Hamas, the Zecharim, which is the rabbis in the Betin, are over. Now, if they accepted the testimony, the rabbis in the Betin have transgressed a negative commandment. However, there is no lashes on this commandment. It's because if it's a monetary case, it's Nitan de Hishabon. It's able to rectify, in a monetary case at least, they're able to square it off and give the money back. Therefore, it's considered a lav, shenitan, lehishabon, and therefore there is no malkun. Baruch Adonai le'olam, amen, amen. Rabbi, ananyam, al-gashrabotai, taryag mitzvot. And we are up to number 77. It's a negative commandment. Shelo lintot achare rabim bedinin al-fashot b'shvil echad. So if somebody's on trial, capital punishment, so of course you need the majority of the judges to vote that he's guilty in Hayab Mitah, that he's punishable by death. However, we don't accept, according to the Torah law, a simple majority. A simple majority would mean that all you need is one judge uh, above the majority, to make the majority, I should say. That's not enough. According to the Torah law, you actually need a supermajority, which means you need at least two judges that uh, convict over those that don't convict. And they learn it from the Pasuk in the Shpatim again, Pasuk Bet, that says, Lo That means do not follow the majority when it comes to convicting in a, in a, in a death penalty case. That means, of course, we have to follow the majority. What it means to say is do not follow a simple majority, you need at least two. The question is why? So the Hanuk explains a very important lesson that you could probably apply to life. And he says, because uh, when you're putting somebody on death row, it's It's something uh, that you can't undo. Once you kill somebody, it's, a, it's something that cannot be undone. And therefore, you don't want to make a mistake. And if he says, we have to act like a Kadosh Baruch Hu and his ways. And God's ways is what? Rav Chesed. Kilomar, he does above and beyond what the law requires. And therefore, when it comes to the Fashot, since if you make a mistake, like I said in this case over here, you can't, you can't change it once you did it. It's not like money that you can say, okay, give the money back once the life is taken. So therefore the Torah says you have to be very deliberate before you kill somebody, therefore you need at least two. Of course, if somebody transgresses this, this would be the Beddin. The Beddin would accept 
uh, a simple majority of one and they would execute somebody, so obviously they have a big punishment, a great punishment, because they're actually killing somebody. The Gemaran Sanhedrin on page 17 has a very interesting uh, halakha, and I'd like to explain the halakha today and some of the ramifications that come out of it. The Gemaran there says, if let's say all the judges unanimously convict, so now this is not a simple majority, it's not a super majority, it's unanimous. You have all the 71 judges say, guilty. Halakha says, the one that's on trial walks. He gets a innocent verdict if all convict. Now the question is, how could that be? If they all convict, he must be very guilty. So there's different interpretations. One interpretation is, I saw brought down from the, from the poor scheme, that there's a law that says that the judges have to sleep on it. They don't give the ruling, uh, the, 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 the bottom line, on the day that they come up with their uh, ruling, they have to sleep on it. It's called halanat adin. And what's the purpose of halanat adin? They have to look at the opinions that exonerate it. And they have to see maybe there's some truth to it, maybe there's some logic to it. But in the case where there's no redeeming factor, and there's no uh, 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 body that's willing to, has anything good to say, so therefore they cannot fulfill the mitzvah halanat adin. Because there's nothing to think about. There's no other side. So therefore, since they cannot fulfill the mitzvah halanat adin, so therefore the law is, it's almost as if that the convict uh, gets so far a technical because they can't do halanat adin. I saw from Marit Shayut, he explains that it's impossible. Everybody always has a redeeming factor. Even the biggest criminal in our country, the government gives them a, a lawyer in order to try to defend them. And if the lawyer can't defend them, sometimes the judge itself tries to find something. There's always some type of defense. So Marit Shayut says if, if 71 judges, or 23 judges, could not find a defense, they didn't do their homework correctly. And therefore, it's like a mistrial. It's like, the, it, it can't be that, it's a, that, that somebody does not have some redeeming factor. I saw another interpretation from the Rishonim that they say that if he's so guilty and it becomes so obvious to the judges, the death penalty is not enough. And then Borei Olam will take care of this guy in, in a different way, which means it's so obvious, so the guy's worth deserves maybe even more than the death penalty. But I saw an unbelievable Orachai Kadosh. Once you know this law, so the judges can now manipulate. So the Ola Chagimadosh says two incredible cases where judges are not allowed to do this because it would be considered a manipulation, even though it's a manipulation to bring the result that they want, meaning the result, I should say, that they believe is true, but it's still considered a manipulation. The first case he says is, the Torah says, Lo rabim which means, you cannot, uh, you cannot convict. Why can't you convict? Lera'ot. Lera'ot means to convict. We're talking about a judge over here that really believes that the, the, uh, uh, the litigant on trial over here is innocent. In his heart, he believes he's innocent. So how does he want to get the guy to be innocent? 22 of the judges said guilty. So he believes he's innocent, but he knows if he says innocent, then it's 22 against one guilty, they'll kill him. So what does he want to do to get his opinion... He says guilty, because he knows by saying guilty, now already he walks. So the Torah comes up and says, no. Even though you try to get your, 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 your result, if you believe he's innocent, you have to say innocent. You can't come along and say a wrong psaq in order to get the right result. And then the Lord Hamikadosh gives the other case. It says, which means if you hold the other case, you hold these guilty, let's say, 
So therefore, don't rule that what? That he's innocent. Why? In order that what? You'll judge that he's innocent because now you have uh, uh, the judges... Uh, uh, huh? Right, it's not unanimous anymore. And therefore, you're going to come along and give a wrong ruling on what you believe just to get the right result that you want. So the Torah says on that, Lo ta'ane al-riv lintot, achare rabim latot. Imata soveshu chayav, al tefsok shehu zakai. Do not rule that he is uh, zakai. And therefore, by saying uh, zakai, it's a beautiful, it's 22 against 1, they're going to kill him. No, you can't do that. If you believe that he's guilty, you have to say guilty. Even though it's going to be unanimous, and as a result, he walks. <coughs> Doesn't matter. Not, the judge is not allowed to... Now, even though not everybody agrees on Orach HaMakadosh, some say that if you believe the guy's guilty, you have to say whatever you can say, the judge, because this guy's a bad guy, he's a criminal. You have to get rid of the bad. So they hold that if you hold the guy's guilty, so then you'd be able to even say Zakai in order to get the court to be a 22 to 1 in order to convict. Why? Because you got to get dangerous people off the street. You can't have a guy that you think he's a, a, a murderer and because of a technical, they're going to get him off. But that's not the opinion of the Amakadosh. I'll go to the other page. But nonetheless, again, so when we say majority, majority is in monetary cases or in a regular normal case in Bedin, where you have two to one or whatever it may be. When it comes to capital punishment cases, the majority must be at least by two. Baruch Amen. Tariyag Mitzvot. We're up to number 77. And this is the love in the Torah. Velo ta'ane al-riv lintot. Now this is a very interesting commandment. It's proof to what the Hakamim teach us, Shiv'im Panim La Torah. The Midrash Rabbah in Perikud Gimal Tetzain says that every Pasuk can be learned in 70 facets. This is a perfect example. Uh, this mitzvah, Lota Asev, Lota Ane Al Riv Lintot. So the Sefer Akainuk brings no less than four distinct interpretations to this pasuk, and all obviously apply. So let's go and explain one at a time. Lotomar al hariv davar lintot. When it comes to a riv, riv is a dispute that's in the lit by the litigants in the bedin. So the judges are not allowed to just uh, forfeit their opinion to the others and say, well, if the other rabbis are saying it, so therefore they must know and therefore I'll agree with them. Every dayan has to use their own sevara and their own logic. And you cannot just say, well, they're the majority, they must know, so I'll be mevatil my da'at to them. So lo tomar alariv davar lintot, kilomar levad, don't just sway yourself because of others. You have to have your own opinion and your own understanding. Number two, when the judge is in a capital punishment case and he starts to be melamed zechut and he finds a, uh, a benefit, he finds a, a reason to exonerate, in the beginning of the judgment, he has to stick with his 
opinion to try to force the zechut. Lo lehatot oto lechova. So that's what it means in the Pasuk. Lo, uh, when it says in the Pasuk again, Lo ta'ane arif lintot, once already you started giving an exoneration uh, uh, opinion, in the beginning of the judgment this is talking. Of course, at the end of the judgment you can change your mind. But in the beginning you have to continue on that path and not sway the judgment to a guilty verdict. Number three, When they start a capital punishment case, they always start with the judges that are exonerating, and not lechova. So the pasuk will be read, Lo The opening of the proceedings should not be done in order to find guilty. Number four, when it comes to capital punishment case and the judges have to give their opinion, you don't start from the biggest of the judges. You start actually from the smallest of the judges. And the way we learn the Pasuk over here is instead of reading the word Rav, I'm sorry, Rav, Rav is written without a Yud in the Pasuk. So we read it, Rav. Which means you do not answer after the Rav. El of the Rav answers after you. Which means you start from the smallest of the judges. So again, here we have one Pasuk. And in one Pasuk we learn four alachot that apply to the courts. Again, we'll review them. Number one, the judge has to have an opinion of his own. And he can't say, well, the other judges uh, must be smart. Therefore, whatever they say, I agree. Or let's say, well, if they have a Gizirah Shabbat, even though I never heard that Gizirah Shabbat, but I'll accept it. No, it has to come from their own understanding. Number two, when they start to be Melamed Zechut, they have to stick with that line of reasoning and they cannot change it until the end if they have a different opinion. Furthermore, proceedings of the of Hashanah always must begin. And when they start to give their opinions, you start from the smallest of the judges and not from the biggest of the judges. The reason for this deen over here is, is we want the case, especially in Dineh Nefashot, in capital punishment cases, we want the judgment to come from the consensus of judges. We don't want it to be one man's opinion. And if everybody's going to come along and say, well, the rabbi said it, he's smarter, and therefore, okay, whatever he says, we agree. So now you're judging a person guilty on one man's opinion. And the Torah says, we want to have mercy. Banimatem Hashem. And therefore, HaGadur Baruch Hu doesn't want to give life and death to one man. He wants to give it to a consensus. Of course, this applies to males because, as we said many times in the Sefer HaRinuch already, only males are suitable to be judges and not ladies. And this is a law in Bedin. For some reason, in this halakha, the Sefer HaRinuch wakes up and he says, wait, how could it be that you could tell me that only men can be judges what about the famous judge called Devorah? She was a female, she was one of the Shoftim, and it says, Israel. She judged Israel. So he comes along and he offers two answers. One answer he says is that, no, what it means she judged, mean the Hakamim of the Betim discussed the Halakot with her, meaning she was part of the discussion, but not that she actually sat on Betim, she was a Pikachat. So they had to talk and learning, they talked and learning with Devorah. The second explanation is that they accepted her as a Dayan. And the Allah says, at least when it comes to Dine Mamonot, monetary cases, that if Klaisil or the litigants accept anybody to be their judge, even though they're normally Pasul, since Kibbelah Alehem, 
So then already she is suitable and she's able to judge. Again, that would only be in a monetary case. Of course, this only applies in Eretz Israel, where there is Dinei Nefashot, uh, all these laws that we explained, there's no capital punishment judgments outside of Eretz Israel. The judge that transgresses this clearly transgresses a negative commandment in any of the four ways that we learned today, but there's no Malkut because it's all verbal and it's considered a lab, She'en Bo Ma'aseh. Again, the 77th mitzvah, Lo Ta'aneh Arriv Lintot, and we explained it in four distinct ways. The judge after has his own opinion, we start with Zechut, he has to continue with Zechut. Then in Fashot, we start the proceedings with Zechut and Arhovah. And when we count up the judges, we don't start from the Gadol, actually, we start from the Katan. Baruch Adwan Amen. Amen. Rabotai Tariag Mitzvot, we're up to the 78th Mitzvah. It's a positive commandment, which is the rule of majority. As the Pasuk says in Perech Avgima Pasuk Bet, and this tells us over here that when we have an argument amongst the hachamim, we must follow and take the majority opinion as the accepted halakha. Now, of course, we're only talking about over here where all things are equal. All the hachamim that are arguing are on the same caliber. We don't just take a a majority of, uh, of, 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 uh, of opinions. It has to be a majority of opinions of equal authoritative level. The Sifra Hainuch in his golden language says, She'en lomar she'kat hachamim mu'etet lo takhriya kat burim merubeh ve'afilu ke'yotzeh mitzrayim. He says that it would be very uh, illogical to think for a moment that a small group of rabbis can be outnumbered by a bunch of ignoramuses, even if they are multiple, like the people that came out of Mitzrayim. Of course, obviously, it does not make any sense to take such a majority. And he then comes along and says, And even if sometimes the Hakamim themselves, in their opinion, they don't come to the truth. Halila. You have nothing to worry about. The onus is on the Bedin that made the ruling, not on us. If a Bedin makes a ruling and the individual follows it, the Bedin needs to bring the Korban and not the individual. Now the reason why the Torah gave its laws to the majority is the following. And I'm quoting the Chinuch. It is in order to strengthen and to fortify the religion. Why? Which means everybody knows how to learn. Everybody's going to open a book. And everybody's going to come along and say, the way I understand it, and my understanding of the truth is as such. Now, once a person believes what he is concluding is the truth, even if the whole world will tell him the opposite, he's not going to be able to go against his truth. The truth is subjective to each person. 
And then what's going to end up happening? Then you're not going to have one Torah, you're going to have many Torah. You're going to have every single person in every single community doing what he thinks is true, and then it's going to be splintered congregation, and it's going to be divided. And therefore, the Torah figured out a system, majority rules, majority of hakamim, and that becomes the accepted halakha. Noheget, this mitzvah applies in all places at all times. Male and female are both obligated to subject their opinions to the majority. Of course, if somebody does not subject themselves to the majority opinion, they transgressed a positive commandment. There is no malkut, obviously, on a positive commandment, but the language of the Hanukkah again is, gadol me'od, but the punishment is very great, because the Torah is being uh, 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 leaning and relying on this principle. And therefore, if you're not going to start following the majority, how does it jeopardize the Torah? Now, there are two other uh, offshoots of the law of majority. We'll just say them quickly. We know the famous law that says, That's the case over there where you have, let's say, uh, a piece of meat, and it uh, came out from uh, one of ten butcher shops. And the law over there is, if let's say nine of the butcher shops are kasher and one is taref, now you don't know if it came out of the kasher or taref, there the Torah also says go with the majority. Called the parish, so long as you found it away from the stores, the law is mirubah kaparish. There's another uh, application to the law of Rob, and that is the law that says bitul barov, which means if you have, let's say, three pieces of meat, all, all look alike, you cannot discern between them, and you have over there that you know one is kashir and two are not kashir, or vice versa, the Torah says that you're able to eat all the pieces of meat, because again, we're going to follow the rule of uh, majority. So again, we have three examples. We have the majority in Bedin or in the rabbinical authorities. We have the law of Kode Parish Merubah, and we also have the Deen of Bitul Baruch. Baruch Adwan Le'ona. Teriyag Mitzvot, number 79. The Torah tells us that the judges are not allowed to favor the poor man in the courts. It's a negative commandment. We have it in two places. Vedal lo tehedar beribo. That's in Shemot Chavgimal Gimal. We also have another pasuk that says lo tisa penedal. That's in Vayikra Yutet Tedvav. What does it mean to show favor? So we have over here two different interpretations. One by the Unkelus Targum. He explains the word tehedar la terahem, which means do not have mercy. Now, why would you have mercy if you're a judge on the poor man? So the chinuch brings down from the sifra, tomar ani The judge might say, miskin is ani ve'ani ve'ashir hayabim nefarneso. And we're obligated to support the poor people. So therefore, he might have thinking that he's doing a mitzvah. Azakenu. Let me give him an innocent verdict that he doesn't have to pay. And 
And at the end of the day, we did Sedaka. So the judge might think that he's blinded by the Medvav Sedaka. If you want to give Sedaka to the Ani, you can do that outside the courtroom. But you can't change the case in order to benefit him. And therefore, the Hidush of here is Talmud Omar, Afiru Sedaka. Every intention is to do Sedaka. Now, Rashi learns the word Tehedar, that you shouldn't give the Ani Kavod. What does it mean, Kavod? So some of the Mepharshim explain that maybe in the courtroom, the judge is going to talk to the Ani in a Mechubad way more than the other litigant, because he feels bad for him. And therefore, he thinks that he has to strengthen him and give him Chizuk. But in the courtroom, there must be equality. And that's why the shortish of the mitzvah is, the Chinook says, Hasechel me'id. It makes perfect logical sense Behashvayat hadin. That justice has to be equal and fair. Shedabar ra'ui v'chasherhu. Now, of course, this mitzvah applies in every place in all times. It only applies to males again because they're the judges. And if the judge is over on this and shows favoritism to the Ani, he transgresses a negative commandment, but there's no malkut because it's a lav. Now regarding one of the earliest judges was King David. David HaMelech Shalom it says, Vahi David Osem Mishpat Ustaka Lechol Ammo. So the Gemara asks, how can you do in a courtroom mishpat and tzedakah? Mishpat means justice. Tzedakah means chesed. Make up your mind. Did David go into the courtroom and issue justice? Or was he doing kindness? So there's different explanations how to explain it. Some explain that he went in and made peshara. Peshara means he didn't give a, 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 a mishpat. The mishpat that he did was tzedakah, which means what? Instead of giving a, a, a cut ruling that one side is innocent, one side is guilty, he went for peshara, peshara, which means a compromise. Another explanation they say is that after he gave the mishpat, he would pay from his own pocket the money that the ani would owe. So therefore it was mishpat lazer, v'sedakah lazer. He didn't favor the ani. And he was guilty, he said guilty. But then he would pay it from his pocket. The third explanation is that even the mishpat is called the sedakah. Because you're doing a favor when you stop a person from stealing. That if a judge comes up and says you have to pay, true, it's deen. But ultimately did him the biggest favor. That you caused him to reparate against the avon of gezel. He doesn't have to come back as a gilgul. He makes the ultimate tikkun. So the Amelah's kavanah was... That when he was issuing mishpat, his kavanah was ultimately sedakah as well. Again, you see, many of these laws that we've been learning are referring to batedin. But again, the lesson to us, we're not judges. But again, the equality and not to favor uh, anybody, especially when it comes to rulings and things of such sort. Baruch Amen We're up to the 80th mitzvah. And that is the uh, mitzvah to help somebody load and unload his animal. It's based on a pasuk. The pasuk is ki hamor sunaacha rovetz tachat masao v'hadata ma'azov lo azov ta'azov emo. When a person sees the donkey of his enemy, 
and it's crouching under its load. So the Torah says you cannot desist. You have to actually help the person unload his animal. Now, even though the Torah says you're not allowed to hate anybody, so how can it be over here that you see the hamor of your enemy? The Gemara says, what happened to the Pasuk of Tisna et So the Gemara says, we're talking about over here somebody that is permissible to hate, which is somebody that was a witness and he warned somebody for making an avira in private. And the person heard the uh, warning and still transgressed the sin. So this person knows that this person is an asha. So therefore, to him, it's it's a legal soneh. But the Torah says, nonetheless, even if you have a right to be soneh him, you still have to go out of your way to help him. And when the Torah says, hamor, the donkey, doesn't mean donkey only. The Hanukh writes, katu but it's referring to any type of animal that has a load on it. Now, obviously, the shortage of this mitzvah, why you have to help people load and unload the animal, is lilmod nafshenu mimidata hemla, to train the Jewish people in the measure of compassion. Shimida mishubachat. It's a, a praiseworthy measure. The ensadi klomar shehova alenu lachmol alaish hamitzta'ed begufo. Which means the Torah is telling you that not only do you have to be concerned about the person's animal, but certainly if you see the person himself that's in pain, so certainly you would have to go out of your way to help him. Even his money, his assets, the Torah is telling you, you have to go out and try to help him. Now there's a lot of laws regarding this mitzvah of loading and unloading. For example, what the Gemara says, Ohev lefrok v'soneh on. The Gemara is an interesting case. Let's say you have in front of you two people with two donkeys. One of them is your friend. One of them is your enemy. And your friend needs help loading the donkey. And the enemy needs help uh, on. Which means, sorry, yeah, the Ohev needs help unloading the donkey. And the Sone needs help loading the donkey. Now normally we give a preference to unloading because the animal is in pain. And over here your friend needs help in order to unload the donkey. But there's an enemy there that needs help to load the donkey. So the halakha says that you should help the soneh. Why should you help the soneh? The Gemara says in order to break and subjugate your Yetzirah. That is a fantastic machloker over here between the Rishonim. The Chinuch is learning what type of soneh is this over here. He says this is a regular soneh. Well, you just don't like the guy. Which means, not because you're allowed to not like the guy. It's, it's somebody that you don't get along with. Uh, you don't have a, a, a liking for Well, that's a problem. So therefore the Gemara says, it's more important to break your Yetzirah to do a favor for the soneh in order to help him load his donkey and do not help the ohev unload the donkey. It's more important to break his yetzerarah. The Tosafot, however, in Baba Metziah Lamed learns the case differently. 
He says the sunnah that we're talking about over here is the sunnah that we mentioned earlier, where you're allowed to hate him. So if you're allowed to hate him, what does the Gemara mean? What do you mean to overcome a Yetzirah? There's no Yetzirah. You're allowed to hate the guy. So Tosfor over here says a tremendous chedush in the, uh, in the psychology of how people relate with each other. The Gemara, the Tosfor explains like this. You're going to hate the guy. And you're allowed to hate the guy because you warned him to, not to do an Avera. And he didn't listen. The guy's a Rasha. You have a right to hate him. But what's going to happen when you hate him? He's going to hate you back. That's the way it works. The Gemara says on the Pasuk, Kamai mepanim lepanim, ken leba adam adam. Just like there's a reflection from water, you see your face, feelings are also reflective. So you're going to hate him legally. He's going to hate you back because that's the way it works. Now because he hates you, you're going to hate him back. That part is not legal anymore. Now you're not hating him anymore because of the avira. Now you're hating him because it's personal. But that Tosfot says, in order to overcome that little measure of extra hatred that is not bonafide, Again, the original hatred is bonafide. He made an avera, But what's going to happen? It's going to be reciprocal. He's going to be now the brunt of hatred of this person because, because it's reflective. And then once he becomes the brunt of his hatred, what's going to happen? He's going to hate him back. That extra hating back is already not legal. Therefore, the Gemara says, it's better to help him uh, uh, load the animal in order to overcome and break the Yetzirah. Now, regarding... Some of the details of this law, the Pasuk says, Ki You have to see the Hamor of your friend. The Gemara says that uh, how far you have to see where you'd be obligated to help. The Gemara says it is one, uh, one seventh of a meal. That's the distance, how far you're obligated to go out of your way. The law is that when it comes to loading the animal, you have to do it for free, but unloading, you're allowed to charge. The Gemara says, Unload is for free, but the load, I guess, is harder. So therefore, you're allowed to charge the guy. And the law says that even after you load the animal, you have to escort him to make sure that the stuff doesn't fall off. However, you could charge for the escort. And therefore, uh, the mitzvah is not only to help him load the animal, but it's actually to make sure that it was done correctly. Of course, this mitzvah applies to male and female alike. It applies in all places at all times. If somebody transgressed this, he transgresses a positive commandment and he shows that indeed he is a cruel person. Like it says over here, and then it says, because he does not have mercy on the people, he sets himself up that God will not have mercy on him from the Shamayim. Therefore, again, the Torah is going out of its way to tell us that there's two mitzvot over here. There's two concepts. Concept number one, you have to have mercy not only on your friend's pain, but help him, help him uh, alleviate even his animal. But then the second thing is that when a person has a chance to do something that hurts him, which means to break his yetzer, that is even greater option. We continue the study of the Tariag Mitzvot. Today we're learning the 81st Mitzvah. And that is not to sway the judgment of a litigant, even though he is a Rasha. 
It's a negative commandment. The Torah says, Lo tatem mishpat ebyonecha beribo. It's perech kaf gimal pasuk vav. That a pasuk literally means, do not tilt the judgment of ebyon. Ebyon literally means somebody that is impoverished, a poor man. But we learned already in a previous mitzvah that we're not allowed to have mercy on a poor man in the court uh, and think that we're doing him a favor by giving him a, uh, an innocent uh, verdict that he doesn't have to pay the money. We have that already. So what does Evyon Echavihim mean? So the Gemara says, Evyon Bamitzvot. We're talking about a guy who does not have mitzvot. More so he's a rasha. And the Hadush of the Torah is that even though he's a rasha, so the judge cannot come along and say, well, listen, he's guilty anyway in heaven. He's a bad guy. So let me settle the score and let me just give him a guilty ruling, whatever the case may be. And the Hinuch writes, no, you can't do that. Ki mishpat barsha'im lelohimhu. Velo lo. You're not God. God will take care of the Rishayim. The judge has to judge the case that's in front of him, regardless of the person's religious record. Now, it's really a question, it's a shocker. What's the Hava Amina that I would think that a judge, that why he could steal just because a guy maybe is not on the religious level? What gives the judge that I need a Pasuk to come along and say that he can't do it? And what? If without a Pasuk, I would have thought what? Because the guys that are shasta, therefore there's no justice, that the, the judge could just take money away from him uh, lawfully. Are we, are we allowed to steal from the Rishayim? So the Mefarshim come along and explain that we're learning, and the case we're talking about over here is a type of Rasha that the Gemara in Baba Kamad of Kufiutet says is mutar le'abed mamono, that you're allowed to take away his money. What type of rasha is that? A moser. So we're talking about somebody that does not care about the money of the Jewish people. He's moser. He gives over the money of the Jewish people to the government. He calls the IRS on other, other people. And therefore, the guy's moser. So when he does that, his money becomes hefker. So you would have thought that in a court case, a judge might be allowed to say, listen, the guy doesn't have any money anyway. His money is free. Therefore, I could say whatever I want. No, you can't do that in the courtroom. In the courtroom, you have to judge the case that's in front of you, and if he's innocent, Now, the shortish of the mitzvah is obvious. The Hanuk's language is, Equality for all. Equality and justice for all. That's something that's understood, and we cannot start to discriminate between a man and a woman, or a religious person, or an religious person, justice must be equal to everybody. Of course, the mitzvah is no heget. Bechol makom in all places at all times. The mitzvah only applies to males, because after all, they're the ones that sit in bedin. It's a law on the courts, not to favor, or not to disfavor the rasha. It does not apply to nekebot. Of course, the bedin that transgresses this and tilts the deen of a rasha has transgressed a negative commandment. However, there is no malkut for two reasons. Number one, lab she'en bo ma'aseh. All he did was make a verbal declaration. Verbal is not a ma'aseh, it's not an action. Therefore, there's no lashes. Or because the judge is able to make reparations. If he took the money of the rasha illegally in the court, he can return it. And we have a law that says that any negative commandment that can be reparated 
is not subject to Malkut. Now, it should be pointed out that I did find a Mechilta. Mechilta is a Midrash in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And he also asked the same question that we asked earlier. Actually, it's his question. What would I think? Would I think that I could tilt the uh, judgment of course, a guy said, Asha, how can you think that you could be able to pervert justice just because a guy is an Asha? So Rabbi Shimon comes along and says, because you might have thought that since he's an Asha, who behaskat shakran? That if a person's an Asha, you could go into the case assuming that he's lying. And therefore, you would have thought that it's an automatic. Once the guy's an Asha on A, that makes him a liar on B. And therefore, I would have thought the judge must assume that he's a liar. Therefore, the Torah comes along and says that it's not conclusive. A person can be an Asha in A, but does not necessarily cause him to lie in B. So therefore, you can't assume that automatically he's a shakran. And therefore, the Torah comes along and says, Lo tatem mishpat See how the Torah is so fair that even to a Rasha, the Torah demands, at least when he's in the courtroom, that he gets an equal trial. Baruch Anwal Ulam. Amen. Abotai, we're continuing the study of the Tariyak Mitzvot. We're up to, up to Mitzvah number 82. And that is the law on judges again, not to give a ruling on circumstantial evidence. And it's a negative commandment. It's based on the Pasuk Vinaki Vitzadik Al Taharog. It's in Parashat Mishpatim. Again, Perech Gimal Pasuk Zayin. What does it mean, Vinaki Vitzadik Al Taharog? Simply means don't kill somebody who's clean and innocent. Which means, unless the judge is 100% certain that the person did the crime based on the testimony, then already you can convict him. But if he's not certain, so therefore you're not allowed to convict somebody, especially in a death penalty, just because of circumstantial evidence. The Hinuch gives the example. Ra'uhu rodef achar habero lehorgo. The Uven is running after a guy with intention to kill. Vitrubo, and they warn the Uben, that that guy you're trying to kill, he's Jewish, Ben Beritu. And if you kill him, you're going to be Hayav Mita, you're going to be punished by death. So he was warned that the fellow he's about to kill is Jewish, and he was also warned that there's a death penalty. So he was warned legally, and he didn't pay attention. He kept on running. For a moment, the witnesses lost eye contact with what was going on. A few moments later, they found Shimon lying on the ground with the knife that Uven had in his hand is thrusted in the heart of Shimon and uh, there is blood coming out of the hands of Reuven. So the Gemara says, the Madras says, can you convict in such a case? Talmud Lomar, Venaki Vitzadik al Taharog. You didn't see it, it's all circumstantial. She'ilu at Torah, hitira lekayim, givulea onish bev sharuta karov. Because if you can allow this case, which is the odds are, looks like it happened. This is called close circumstantial evidence, but you'll come to make now. Death penalties on far circumstantial evidence. There's no limit. 
Once already you break and compromise the rule of testimony, you don't have to see it, it's enough to understand, you can make assumptions, then there's no limit. What's going to stop a judge from making a death sentence on a close circumstantial or a far circumstantial? And then the Hinuch uses a beautiful Lashon, which is a lesson in life where he says, Ki Adam, Shalom, he says, Ad shenamit, God forbid the courts are going to execute Bene Adam Lifamim al Mashilo Asu. They're going to kill people for things that they didn't do. And then he says, Kiyesh le Ifsharut Rahav Gadol. He says, You'll be surprised. A lot of things can happen. There are a lot of different scenarios. So a person's locked in. No, who else killed them? Don't uh, limit yourself. A lot of things can happen. There's a lot of options that you're not aware about. Kiyesh le Ifsharut. Now included in this lav is two other lavin. The case is talking about over here, let's say, two witnesses come along and they testify on Reuven. One witness said, we saw the guy was Mahalel Shabbat. The other witness says, we saw he worshipped Abu Dazara. Two witnesses, two crimes that are punishable by death. However, they're two separate crimes. And since you don't have two witnesses for each crime, the Betin cannot convict. And even if you have two witnesses that come and testify on the same crime, one says he worshipped Abu Dazara by worshipping the sun. The other witness said he worshipped Abu Dazara by worshipping the moon. They cannot kill him for such a thing. Ben Akiv, Sadiq, Al Taharog. Of course, this mitzvah is no Heget in Erich Israel, only by males because they're the judges. Somebody that goes against this transgresses a negative commandment. On Shogadol, punishment is great. Shigorem laharog nefashot shelokedin. Because you're causing people to die unlawfully. Now the Ramban over here has a different way of learning this pasuk. The Hanuk actually brings down the interpretation of the Ramban. Venaki vetzadik al taharog. So we're talking about over here, somebody that was convicted in Bedin, Hayav. And now they're taking him out to execute. And all of a sudden a witness comes or somebody comes and says, I have something good to say, I have new evidence. I have exonerating testimony. Halakha says, you bring him back to the court. Maybe he's naki. And therefore, even though they convicted him already, doesn't matter. Maybe he's still clean. Bring him back and retry him. However, let's say they exonerated somebody. And that's it. He left the court. And somebody now comes along and says, wait, I have new evidence that he might be guilty. There's the Ramban. Once already he was uh, uh, ruled to be a tzaddik, meaning tzaddik meaning he's innocent. You don't retry the case to go guilty. So therefore we have two more isurim according to the Ramban. Venaki tzaddik. Two different cases. The Naki is somebody that might be Naki after retrial. And somebody that was already ruled to be a Tzaddik, both cases, Al-Tahrog. You're not allowed to kill either one of them. And therefore, Rabotai, we see the Torah's opinion about the death penalty. <clears throat> Although the Torah clearly is pro-death penalty when it applies, but the Torah is very, very deliberate not to make a mistake in order that when we're executing somebody, it's the right person and it's for the right crime. Amen. Amen.
Rabotai, we continue our study of the Tariyag Mitzvot. We're up to the 83rd Mitzvah. It's a Mitzvah Lo Ta'aseh. It's on the judges, Sheloli Kach Shohad, that they're not allowed to take bribes. The law says, based on the Pasuk and Mishpatim, Perech Avgimal Pasuk Chet, the Shohad Lo Tikach. And the Gemara says that even if they take the shohad, the bribe, in order to judge a true judgment. And the reason the Chinuch writes in the Shorish is, Because even if a judge will take bribes in order to judge correctly, it brings him to bad practice and bad habit. And what ends up happening is he ultimately will be bribed in order to sway his judgment from the truth and therefore the Torah was osir bribery under all situations. Now, the judge that accepts the bribe is over on the love. He also is included in the arur. There's a curse on any judge that takes bribery. And of course, the judge is obligated to return the bribery back. The one that gives the bribe transgresses the isur of lifnei iver lotiten mikshol. The Gemara Kitubot says that even somebody that bribes a judge verbally by complimenting him or doing him a small favor, that's also considered a bribe. So the Hinuch writes, what is the judge supposed to do in such a case? He heard it. So he received the bribery. So he writes, Ya'aseh atzmo ki'ilu eno mesim libo klal ila devarim. He has to make as if he doesn't accept it. Like we say by la shonara. Even though you heard it, you have to say, I don't accept it. Otherwise he heard the shohat. So it's like he was mekabel. But the Gemara Kitubot says that even if he didn't accept the bribery, once the litigant tried to bribe him, He's pasul to judge the case, even though he didn't accept the bribery. Of course, this mitzvah is no heget. Bechol makom in all places, at all times, it only applies to male. Because again, they're the only ones that are allowed to be judges. Ladies cannot be judges. And if the judge did accept the shohad, avar al mitzvah tamelech. Of course, he transgressed the law, but he does not get malkut because it's a law and nitam lehishavon because the judge is able to return the bribe. Now there is a very important distinction that needs to be made in this mitzvah. Clearly the halakha writes, Tamid hacham is able to make rulings for himself. For example, it's permissible for a Tamid hacham to make a ruling on an animal that he slaughtered. He wants to know if it's a nevela or it's a terefa. He's able to say, this animal, according to my opinion, is keshera to eat. Even though who's going to eat it? He's going to eat it. Even though he's anim marud, even though he's a poor man, and he needs the food, and if he doesn't eat this, he will not have what to eat. The Gemara says, Tamir Hakam can make a ruling on his own halakhot. Furthermore, Hakam is allowed to rule on rulings by Hamed Sha'abar al Pesach. Let's say you have a whole uh, 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 warehouse of food. And it's the rabbi's food. He's able to make a ruling if it's going to be legal or not. And if he says the hametz is legal, he can eat it. 
And the question, of course, is why? And Nachemim come along and say, is because there's nothing more in front of a Tamir Hakam's eye than the truth. To him, it's more important to come to the proper truth conclusion than to be swayed. So the Hazonish asks the obvious question. So then what do I care if you bribe a judge? If you tell me that the most important thing to a Tamir Hakam is to be emet, and he can make rulings for himself, so let the judge take a bribe. Ultimately, the emet is going to be uh, uh, the thing that's in front of his eyes. Furthermore, v'chi, anybody's going to think that if Moshe Rabbeinu ala v'shalom accepts a bribe because of that, he's going to pervert the justice. Moshe emet, you think a few dollars or a few compliments is going to change Moshe Rabbeinu's brain? The law applies to Moshe Rabbeinu as well. So the Hazunish says a very important yesod in Emunah Betahon in Perek Gimal, where he says, "Yesh b'shohad kowach tumah miyuhad hametamtem et lev hadayan." There's a certain kowach tumah in shohad. It's like a hook. You can't explain it. It's like when we say a person eats not kosher. It's metamtem. It causes a certain delusion. It causes a certain uh, uh, lapse of judgment. When a person accepts shohad, the avon creates a tumah in the judge. And then he says, umardim et da'ato. Mardim. It causes his da'at to fall asleep. Means he has a lapse, lapse of judgment. Umate et lebavo. Even the biggest sadiq, it'll cause him to be swayed. Lezakot et notena shohad. The rabbi didn't accept the bribe when he's making a ruling on himself. So he's going against his own nature. The Torah trusts that the hakam will go above his nature to say the emet. But once you transgress the isur, the tum'ah of the isur is on the person. Now, an honest person will become blind. Like the Torah says, Ki The shohad has an uncanny ability in order to sway even the vret tzadikim, even the words of the righteous. Baruch Amen. Amen. Abotai, we continue the study of the taryag mitzvot. We are up to the 84th mitzvah. This is a mitzvah aseh, very appropriate for this year. It is the mitzvah of shemitat karka. Like the Hinuch writes that the primary mitzvah is lehafkir kol ma hashvi'it. One has to make all the product that grows from the land during the seventh year of the cycle and he has to proclaim it ownerless in order to allow anybody to come along and take, as the Pasuk says in Mishpatim, in Perek Chav Gimal, Pasuk Yud Alef, Ve'ashivi'it, Tishmetena untashta, Ve'achilu ibyoneh amecha. The Torah says in the seventh year, that one has to forego his field and leave it in order to allow the poor to come along and take. Now interesting, the Hinuch in this case does not suffice to bring one reason for Shemitah. He normally brings one primary reason for the mitzvah. In this case, he brings three shorashim, three roots for the mitzvah. 
go through them quickly. Number one, and I quote, Likboa belibenu ulsayer siyur hazak bemachshevotenu enyan hidush haolam. The first and most important is to embed in the person's heart and in his mind that he should have a picture that he understands clearly that there's what's called Hiddush Ha'olam. The world did not always exist. Like the old philosophers of the Greeks would say, the Olam is Kadmon, which means the Olam was always around. We believe that there was a starting point. Like the first word in the Torah says, Bereshit. Ulma'an hasir Shemitah to remove v'la'akor and to uproot v'lesharesh v'ra'yonenu from our thought process davar hakadmut. Kadmut again means that the world was just here from the beginning. Now how does Shemitah do that? V'hu ke'inyan she'anu mutsi'im yemei ha'shavua v'sheshet yemei avodah. Shemitah actually has a microcosm in what we do every week where we work for six days and then we take off on the seventh. So what, what Shabbat is to the weeks, Shemitah is to the years. Now what does that prove to us? So he writes, Shiyesh Adon al Haaretz, that is a landlord, that the world is not ownerless. There was someone that created the world and it belongs to him and that's of course the creator, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Yesh Adon al Haaretz, Ushehu Hafetz, and the landlord sets the rules of when you could benefit and when you can't. If you don't believe that there's a creator, so why should I be mafkir my field? The long belongs to me. But Shemitah reminds us there was a creator and therefore he sets the rules of the terms of the lease. Reason number two. Leknot midat havatranut. Hinuch talks about the great midah and personality trait of being a vatran. Vatran means that if something belongs to you, and even though you have ownership on it, but you mevater, which means you forego it, and you allow somebody else to benefit. What is the value of midata vatranut? So the Chinuch, and I quote in his language, En nadiv kenoten mebeli tekva elagemul, that there's no greater giver no greater generous person that gives without any anticipation of reciprocation. He doesn't want anything for it. So the person who has a field, he grew the product and he worked on it and now he lets the field, he opens the gates and he allows the poor people to come and take it and he doesn't ask them for money or any remuneration. Most of the people that are taking, he doesn't even know who they are. This will establish inside of him, outside of Shemitah, Midata Vatranut not to stand on principle and allow, even though he has rights, but to forego his rights. Thirdly, Obviously, the person uh, lets his field go and he doesn't work for a year. He has to think for a minute, how am I going to live? Where am I going to make Parnassah? Especially that even when he starts to work again in the eighth year, it's going to take time for the, for the field to grow and produce, and therefore it forces him to put his trust and his uh, belief and faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Clearly this mitzvah is noheget, ben bezecharim, ben benekevot, male and females. However, it only applies 
from the Torah in Eretz Yisrael, and only Bismanchi Yisrael Sham, and the majority of the Jewish people are living in Eretz Yisrael. However, Zmanazeh, that we don't have yet a presence in Eretz Yisrael, although we have people living there, but not on the level as uh, in the olden days, or the time of the temple, and therefore, Medrabanan, Noheget Afilu Bismanazeh, but only in Eretz Yisrael. And then the Chinuch introduces to us a tremendous Chidush. And he goes out of his way and he talks about the conquests of David HaMelech Alav HaShalom. David HaMelech Alav HaShalom, before Eretz Yisrael was completely conquered, went and annexed some lands and made them uh, subsidiaries to Eretz Yisrael. One of those lands that Chinuch talks about is Surya. And he writes, and I quote his language, Vehi ha'ares asher keneged aram naharayim ve'aram sova kegon damesek ve'halab. That's the words of the Chinuch. And then he says that even though it's not Eretz Yisrael, and therefore the laws of Shemitah should not apply there, however, the Hachamim made a takana that the laws of Shemitah will apply in Surya, Rambam says, why? Because it's very close to Eris Yisrael. And therefore they were concerned, that they didn't want the Jews of Israel to move to Syria. Because they say, beautiful, we're going to have to do Shemitah over there. We can have real estate. They say, you're not going to escape Shemitah. Even over there, you're going to be subject. That's Rambam in Elchot Shemitah in Perek Dalid Halakha Chavzayin Ayin Sham. Finally, if somebody went and he put a fence around his field, or he locked the door, and he did not give the anim or the people, access to collect the perot, bitel mitzvat aseh. However, the Chinuch reminds us that the owner himself is not worse than anybody else. Umutad lo le'esof me'at me'at. While he's not allowed to bring hordes of fruit into his house, but he's allowed to take just like everybody else, a little at a time, and eat it. And then he writes in his golden language that what's the reason why they allow the owner to take a little at a time? He says, In order to make it apparent that there's no owner to the land. If the owner would be taking more than anybody else, so you say, oh, he must be the owner of the land. But if he's taking the small amounts like everybody else, then it becomes obvious that the owner is only HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So again, the Botai, we're coming upon a Shemitah year. So although maybe for B'nai, let's say, Chutz in America, Shemitah has very little application, but the reasons of the Shemitah definitely apply. The number one, the belief in Hiddush Olam that there's a creator and the world belongs to him. The Midah Vatranut, which you don't have to be a Shomer Shibi'it to have the Midah of the Vatranut, and of course the Midah of Betachon. Baruch Hanuman Ha'olam. Amen ve'amen. Botai Tariyag Mitzvot, we're up to number 85, which is the Mitzvah of Shibitat Shabbat, to rest and not do Melacha on Shabbat. As it says in Mishpatim again, Perech of Gimel Pasuk Yudbet. Now this is a repeat. We already learned about the Mitzvah of Shabbat. The Chinuch reminds us 
to go back and look at mitzvah number 32, where the Torah initially introduced to us during the Ten Commandments, the mitzvah of Shabbat. Tainuk then goes on to tell us that actually the mitzvah of Shabbat is mentioned no less than 12 times in the Torah in order to emphasize to us its stringency. Ramban learns from this mitzvah, this positive commandment, a very important lesson, which is also an important hashkafah in the Torah. He says, when we say Shabbat Shabbat, to rest on Shabbat, it does not mean only from melacha, from things that are forbidden, meaning Yisur melacha, but it includes even things that are strenuous, even though there might not be an Isud. He says because the Shabbat was given for oneg, for resting and pleasure. Which is a big, important ashkafa over here, that the way of the Torah is that a person might think that he can fulfill the Torah without making any transgression However, he missed the purpose of what the Shabbat was all about. The person says, I went through the whole Shabbat and I didn't do any one of the 39 melachot. Meanwhile, he was moving things all up, the upstairs, downstairs, cleaning out the garage, going from the... St- I didn't touch one thing that was mukseh, I didn't do anything that was forbidden. However, he was involved in strenuous labor the whole day. So technically, he found a, you know, a loophole. However, he missed the whole purpose, the matara the function of the Shabbat. There's two examples that the Rabban gives to this. For example, the Torah tells us, Kedushim Tiyu, we have to be Kadosh. And from the Mitzvah of Kedushim Tiyu, we learn the Isud of immorality. We also learn the Isud of eating things that are forbidden and drinking things that are forbidden. So a person might say, perfect. So he'll go and marry 10 wives and he'll eat kosher food all day long and drink wine, and he's a gluttonous person that's filled with lust. We call that a menuval b'reshuta Torah. That ultimately is a menuval, he's a lowlife, but he's doing it b'reshuta Torah. So therefore you see, he missed the point. The Torah is not only discussing over isur ve'eter, it's a lifestyle. So a person technically could follow it legally, but he missed the point, he missed the lifestyle the Torah is trying to promote. Furthermore, the Torah says, Ve'asita hayashar ve'atov. In business, the Torah says, they want you to be straight. So therefore, don't steal, don't overcharge, and follow all the laws. However, a person could be a crook legally, which means he didn't break any of the laws of the Torah. He followed everything right, but he's not a straight guy. He's swindling people and he's cheating people, but without breaking any technically of the rules. Because he relied on a leap loophole over here, and a leniency over there. So the question you have to ask yourself, is this guy Yashar? Is he Tov? Clearly he's not. Although you can't write him a summons for any specific crime that he committed. But then again, you see that Torah is not only about the technical laws. Torah is to put a person in a certain frame of mind. So back to Shabbat. A guy can come along and say, I didn't transgress one of the Isurim of Shabbat. But you didn't do what the Shabbat was made for. For Menuha and for Oneg. And therefore, a person involves himself in this strenuous behavior and acts himself in a way that takes away from the purpose. So the Ramban says he has transgressed. So according to the Ramban, there's two different isurim. And then you get the overriding halakha.
Rabotai, <coughs> we are studying the Tariyag Mitzvot, Mishut Ma'alat Arav. <coughs> We're up to the 86th Mitzvah. It's a negative commandment. The Torah says in Parashat Mishpatim, in Perech Gimal, in Pasuk Yud, V'shem Elohim Aherim Lo Tazkiru. That we're not allowed to mention the names <coughs> of foreign gods, of Avodah Zarah. Lo Yishama Al Picha. It cannot be heard from your lips. Now, the Sefer Hainuch brings three opinions in the way we understand this commandment. One, Shelon Nishba Beshem Avodah Zarah. That we're not allowed to swear in the name. Of now, when it means we're not allowed to swear in Avodah it means as well that we cannot tell a goy to swear in the name of Avodah if, for example, he owes us money. So therefore, we're causing him to make an Avon as well, because the goyim are not allowed to worship Avodah as well. It's one of their seven mitzvot. So it means you cannot make a Shavu'ah and you cannot cause others to make a shivu'ah if they're going to use the sham of a known avodah zarah. Number two, she'ikar eno ba'ela be'osek im ha'goy be'yom edo. This is talking about that you're not allowed to do business with a goy on his holiday or close to his holiday. Why? Because if he's going to make profit, what is the Goy going to do? He's going to thank his Avodah Zarah. And therefore, again, by you doing commerce with the Goy close to his holiday, he'll give the credit to the Avodah Zarah, and you caused it. Number three, he says, Shelo yomar adam shemorli besad Avodah Zarah pelonit. A person should not use Avodah Zarah as a siman, as a sign. For example, person tells his friend, I'll meet you on the corner right in front of the Avodah uh, Zarah over there at 8 o'clock. You can say, I'll meet you at the bus stop. You say, I'll meet you at the, uh, at the pharmacy. But to come and use an Avodah Zarah as a siman, that's going to be asud as well. Now what's the shortish? Why is this forbidden? It's obvious. I'm quoting you the words of the Hinuch. Leharhik kol inyan Avodah Zarah. We have to distance ourselves. Now keep in mind, nobody's worshipping Avodah Zarah over here. All it is, he's mentioning the name. And the Hachamim are telling us, or Torah is telling us, that we have to distance ourselves from any vestige of Avodah Zarah. Ben b'ma'aseh, ben b'dibur. Certainly no action, but even verbally. Ad shelo That we shouldn't even have it enter our heart at all. Now, in this case over here, he says, the rabbis told us, according to the tradition, that there's no less than 44 times in the Torah that the Torah warns us against Avodah Zarah. 44 times. Why? And I quote the Hinuch. Because it's so abominable and so disgusting, the Torah goes out of its way to mention it so many times. Who does this mitzvah apply to? It applies to men and women equally. It applies bechol makom everywhere, Israel, Chutz Bechol zeman, 
and it applies at all times. Now the Hadush over here is, is what the Chinook says, and Harambam. That if a person, let's say, transgressed this Avon, and he made a Shivu'ah in the name of Avon Azarah, he transgresses the Lot Ta'aseh, and he gets Malkut. Now even though we have a rule that says, Lav she'en bo ma'aseh, en lokin alav. Now when a person transgresses a negative commandment without an action, like verbally, normally he does not get Malkut. However, Merov Homer Avodah Zarah. Since this is connected to Avodah Zarah, and therefore it's more stringent than a regular Lav She'en Bo Ma'aseh, Harambam, as well as the Chinuch says, there is Malkut. Now there is a very important discussion amongst the Rishonim regarding this mitzvah. The Rishonim say that already from their time, which is about a thousand years ago, Already in Europe, in Ashkenaz, and in Surfat, and in France, the custom was to do business with the Goyim on the holiday. What do you mean? But we just said over here, it's a sur. How could you have a custom that goes against a Torah? So he says, the Yishonim say, because of Eva, it was causing animosity. What was happening? The Goyim were enjoying doing business with the Jews. And all of a sudden, they started to see that a couple of days before the holiday, on the holiday, the business dries up. So now, look at these Jews over here. They don't want to do business with us over here. So it started to cause animosity and friction. So the Hachamim came along and said, it's okay. Then the Hachamim came along and said that the custom came that when a Goy would come to court and the Goy uh, would claim, let's say, he doesn't owe the Jewish person money, the Jew would be allowed to make the Goy swear, even on his Avodah Zarah, in order to recover the money. So now we see over here, that whatever we just said, all of a sudden went out the window. So comes a great rabbi called Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Shalom, in his sefer called Igrot Moshe. The Igrot Moshe is in Chelek Yore De'ah, Chelek Aleph, Teshuvah Ayin Aleph. And Rabbi Moshe Feinstein asked a very strong question. If indeed this is a sumana Torah, how could you have a minhag that says because of eva, because of friction, or because of loss of money, it's a sumana Torah. Do we start negotiating because of ulterior reasons, something a sumana Torah? So Rabbi Moshe Feinstein says a tremendous hadush. He says we're forced to say that that which we learned that it's forbidden to do business with the Goyim on their day of holiday is only Asumid Rabbanan. Why is it Asumid Rabbanan? He says because we have a rule throughout the Torah. Davar she'en mitkaven mutar. That if you do something and you don't have kavanah to make any isur, it's mutar, unless it's inevitable. That we call that psikr asher. I want to ask you a question. When a person does business with a, a Goy on his holiday, does he have kavanah to make him uh, praise his avodah? Of course not. He wants to make business. Now, is it inevitable? Is it guaranteed that the Goy is going to praise his Abu It's not guaranteed either. So therefore, Minat Torah, it's mutal. It's only Asur with Rabbanan. Ah, once it's Asur with Rabbanan, Mishum Eva, you could be Mekel. Similarly, when I take a Goy to court, and I say, I want you to make a Shavu'ah, that you don't owe me the money. First of all, who said for sure he's going to make the Shavu'ah? Maybe he'll come along and say, you know what, forget it, I'll pay you the money. It's not for sure that he's going to make the shivu'ah, and you don't have kavanah 
When you say make a shivua, you're coming as that film to make a shivua and avodah zarah. You're coming as to make a shivua, and therefore, since you're not mitkaven, and it's not guaranteed that he's going to make the shivua, it's only a sumed rabbanan. Once it's a sumed rabbanan, we could come along and say bimkom hefsed mutar. And since the Jew has no other way to recover his money, so therefore it would be permissible. So that's the Rav Moshe Feinstein explaining what we're doing today. Although I must point out. From the Sefer HaChinuch, what we just read, it sounds like it's a Sumer Torah. Because he's explaining the Pasuk. He's telling you when it says in the Pasuk, Veshem Elohim Aharim Lo Taskiru Lo Picha, it's one of three interpretations. Either not making a swear or making them swear or doing business with them. He didn't say it's with Rabbanan. So we have to figure out how the Chinuch will learn, or maybe the Chinuch did not agree with this Minhag. However, Rabbi Moshe at least was defining that those Rishonim that are lenient are forced to say that it's only Asur with Rabbanan. We're doing the Taryag Mitzvot. And today we're up to the 87th Mitzvah. It's a negative commandment. And that is the commandment that's written in Mishpatim. Now what is that referring to? So the Chinuch says, This is the law that we refer to as the Madiyah. Madiyah is somebody that makes an effort verbally and with actions to try to bring people and seduce them to do Avodah Zarah. So the Pasuk says, Lo yishama al picha. That should not be on your lips, that you try to uh, convince people to go towards Avodah Zarah. That the Hidush over here is, Ve'afal kore lo ya'avdenu, ve'lo la Even though the one that's convincing doesn't worship Avodah Zarah, and he himself is a believer in God. However, because he's trying to seduce other people, so that is the law of Madiyah. Now there's some uh, very important uh, laws uh, regarding a Madiyah. And number one is, the minimum is two people to be Madiyah. That if a person uh, is doing this Avon, and he only went and tried to convince one person, that's not called the Madiyah. That's called something else. That's called the Mesit. We have a Mesit or Mediyah. Now, we didn't learn about the Mesit yet. But the Mesit is referring to where he went even to one person. Now, there's a big difference also besides the number of people that it applies to. It, Halakha discusses the Mediyah and the Mesit have one difference between them that is very significant. The Madiyah has to be successful. Whereas the Mesit does not have to be successful. What do I mean to say? The Madiyah actually has to convince the person that he's trying to bring to Avodah Zarah. He actually has to be Madiyahim. He has to actually turn him away from God. If it's a failed attempt, if the guy tells him, listen, go away from me. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not interested. Two people, let's say. They say, ah, go away from me. We're not interested. You're not a Madiyah. However, you are a mesit. Mesit means he tries to 
seduce, he tries to attract even though he didn't succeed. Now, this law applies everywhere. It applies in all places. Obviously, it applies to male and female alike. And the punishment of the mediah is the punishment of sekilah, stoning, which is the worst and most severe of all punishments. Now, here in the chinuch, which is one of the benefits of learning sefer chinuch, is besides that he gives us the mitzvah, he also puts a lot of hashkafa in the mitzvah. And today's a classic uh, hashkafa of the chinuch. He's discussing over here that whenever God talks about Avodah Zarah, people that do Avodah Zarah, God says that he gets very angry from this. And he has jealousy from this. And God says he has vengeance from this. And God becomes the enemy of such a person. And the Rambam writes that there's no other sin in the Torah that HaKadosh Baruch Hu talks with such terminologies. The Torah refers to it as Kana, Sone, Oyev, Haronaf, Kaas. These are very, very strong emotions. Says the Sefer Ainuch. Don't think for a minute that God is jealous of anybody, especially a human being. And don't think for a minute that God is vengeful to any human beings. And don't think that if a person worships Avodah Zarah, it doesn't affect God, Kihuzeh, it doesn't affect him a bit which means God is great and God doesn't get affected by the actions of man. God doesn't need man in the first place. As a matter of fact, the Hindu says, if God wanted to take revenge, he could turn the world back to Tovavu if he wants. What? Human beings are going to do something to make God angry? So when the Torah refers to these emotions, it's just mitzad mikabel. It's from our standpoint, God wants to show what they're deserving. You're deserving a punishment like you would deserve from somebody that's vengeful. You deserve a curse or a sickness like somebody that would be your enemy. And therefore the Torah wants to talk in our terminologies. So when somebody is jealous, for example, God forbid, he gives an example. If somebody is, uh, uh, sees that his wife committed a zenut, how jealous and how angry would he be? So God wants you to understand that you're deserving of a similar punishment of somebody that committed such a crime. But in God's standpoint, God doesn't change. And therefore, listen to the language of the Hainuch. He's a vengeful God. He's a jealous God. It's only from the standpoint of those that are committing the crimes. Even if a person does avodah zarah, God's glory is not affected at all. All these are just referring to the punishment that the one that does these things should receive. When a person commits Avodah Zarah, he's worthy to receive everything that is the opposite of blessing. That's curse and sickness. It's a, it's a parable. It's as if we're saying that God became your enemy. Which means what? Therefore, if you have an enemy, you're not going to get any good from that person. And as if he's jealous of you and vengeful. God's not an enemy of any creature. God does not have vengefulness or envy. Boy, they all have good 
One second, turn everybody back to nothing. The Torah writes these these examples. Just so the listener will be able to relate. And therefore, Abotai, uh, we have over here a very, very important hashkafa that we don't shouldn't think that our actions cause a change in God. God was God and God was a king even before he created the world. And our actions cannot affect HaKadosh Baruch Hu as if when we say he gets angry. Who are we to get God angry? God, Borei Olam, is much higher than everything. The explanation is from our standpoint, we're worthy to receive Kivyakol Ki'ilu, such a such an inyan. The lesson for us as well is how much the Torah is concerned, as we learned yesterday, the Torah talks about Avodah Zarah no less than 44 times in order to show us how severe it is even to have a, a failed attempt, a failed attempt to try to go bring somebody towards Avodah Zarah, but the mere fact that one attempted and tried, already he could be subject to the worst of punishments, including Sekinah. So we're continuing our study of the Tariyag Mitzvot. We're up to the 88th Mitzvah. And that is Mitzvah Hagiga Beregalim. There's a Mitzvah three times a year on Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot that all males must make the pilgrimage up to Yerushalayim to the Beit HaMikdash, as the Pasuk says. In Perek Chav Gimal Pasuk Yudalad in Shemot, Shalosh Pa'amim Tahog Li Bashana. Now this mitzvah means that when you go up to Yerushalayim, Tahog Li. Tahog Li means you have to bring with yourself a korban. What type of korban? It's called a Hagiga. That means you're not allowed to come to the Beit HaMikdash empty-handed. Now of course over here in another classic Hashkafa uh, of the Sefer HaChinuch, he says... It's not proper to come in front of the king empty-handed. So it's not enough just to show up at the Beit HaMikdash. you got to show up with a gift. And then the Chinook writes, Truth be told, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't need anything from us. It's not like we're giving him a gift. And clearly we know that he's not eating the korban. As David HaMelech said in the Tehillim, Im ir'av lo omar lach. God says, even if I'm starving, I'm not going to tell you, I don't need you. I can figure it out. I don't need to be fed by others. I provide sustenance to the entire world. Nonetheless, says the Chinuch, Aval ha'emet, Shal nefashot kerovot el hatov Bemakom hahu yoter mish'ar mekomot. He says a very, very important chidush. He says, if you ever went to Yerushalayim and you feel something more, that feeling is real. It's not just in your brain. He said, when a person goes to Yerushalayim and he goes to the Makumah Mikdash, he definitely is in a closer concentration and a proximity. So there's definitely a stronger energy at the Makumah Mikdash. So therefore he says, Therefore, from our standpoint, that it's proper to bring a korban. If the word the, the word korban is melashon karov, 
to come close. So therefore, it's proper. We, we relate to Kadosh Baruch Hu in the way we understand the world. Therefore, if you're coming to a king, you can't come empty-handed, even though he doesn't need it, but it's Kedai, in order to get the blessings of a Kadosh Baruch Hu. So therefore, since we're in a special place, so therefore it deserves to have a gift. Now, of course, this mitzvah does not apply today. It only was no heget, bizman shebet hamikdash kayam, and it only applies to males. Now, how do we know it only applies to males? Shne'emar, kol zechurecha, and the Gemara in Hagigah learns zechurechar zmelashon zachar, and therefore the females are exempt. Now, there's a tremendous hadush in the Gemara Hagigah. The Gemara says that there are some people that are exempt. An example of somebody that is exempt is somebody that cannot go up with Klai Yisrael. Somebody that cannot be part of the pilgrimage. Now, who cannot be part? So the Gemara says, for example, somebody that's sick, and therefore he has a hard time walking. Or somebody that's higir, somebody that's lame. Or God forbid, somebody that's blind. So all these people are infirmed and handicapped, so they have a difficult time getting up. But then the Gemara comes along and says that somebody that has a job and the job causes him to smell, he's also exempt. Why? Because nobody could stand next to the guy. For example, there was a certain job in the olden days. It was called the Mekamets. What was the Mekamets? You'll forgive me, but they would collect manure. And I guess they would use it for fertilizer or for tanning or different things like that. So the mekamets, or the tanner himself that has chemicals that smell and also things that are un, uh, you know, bad, bad, malodorous. So therefore, they're exempt because they cannot go with Klai Yisrael. Hidush of the Harambam and the Sefer Hainuk says, and there's another Hashkafa over here. He says, however, when does it mean in the Gemara that they don't go? As long as they're wearing their smelly clothes and they didn't take a bath and put on perfume and soap. However, the Sefer Anuk says, Mitaharin gufan. Let them clean themselves. Um And they put on good clothes. Ve'olim nifneh Hashem yitbarach. And they go. So they're learning the Gemara that it's only talking about when they're in their state of, uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 smell, forgive me. However, if they could fix it, then they go up. And then he writes like this. Yisrael. He says, what do you think? God discriminates against smelly people? You think God discriminates against somebody that has a, a menial job? Poor guy, he has a job, he works for in, 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 in the sanitation, or he works in the sewer. In God's eyes, you think he's less than somebody that works as a jeweler? Or you think he's less than somebody that works as a, as a brain surgeon? So the Sefer Hainuch in a classic statement says, God doesn't care about your trade. So the Rab says here, you know what God gets disgusted from? People that soul is corrupt. That God says, oh, it's ma'us. But your job, God says, who cares? The job of a person doesn't cause him to be miruhak baruchu. He says, umanut. But then he adds one more caveat. The umanut is only uh, accepted in front of God when the umanut is done b'ne'emanut. The umanut means 
honesty and loyalty. So a person shouldn't feel that he's a second-class citizen in front of God because he doesn't have some sort of uh, you know, prestigious job. God's more concerned that you have a prestigious soul. So you could have a person that works, you know, a first-class guy, but his soul is corrupt. This guy's ma'us. Then you can have another guy that collects manure all day. He's an honest guy, he's a good guy, he has a holy soul, he's humble. But he says, that guy to me is more accepted. Say, clean your clothes and come up to Yerushalayim. Finally, <clears throat> if somebody uh, does not go up to Yerushalayim and does not bring the Qurban in the Azaran, the first day of the Hagim, uh, he was mevatilim mitzvat aseh. He transgresses this positive commandment of shalosh pa'amim tahogli bashana. And the Hinuch tells us that coming up, we're going to see there's another mitzvah, it's a lot ta'aseh, that says, Velo yira'u panai rekam, that you cannot come empty handed. So if a person doesn't show up with the Qurban, he transgresses two a positive commandment and a negative commandment. Last but not least, I saw a, a beautiful piece from Rav Samson Rafael Hirsch. Rav Samson Rafael Hirsch, Allah commentary on this mitzvah, he explains why the handicapped, the sick, and the infirmed are exempt from the mitzvah of Hagigah. If you tell me they can't get there, well, let them get on a, 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 a car. Today we have cars. Let them get on a bus. Let them get on a horse. Guy's blind? Okay, so he can't get there. So let somebody uh, take him. There's a way. If he had to get there, I mean, what did the guy do till now? He figured out how to live in the world. So figure out how to get to Yerushalayim. Why did the Torah exempt them? So he says, In order to show that the reason why God wants us to come up to the Beit HaMikdash of the Regel, He's says, by the nations of the world, why do they go up to their holy place? Because they want, they want something. They're looking for Refu'ah, they're looking for Parnassah, they're looking for Yeshua'ot. Rabbi Hirsch tells us a big hadush. Judaism is not a supermarket where we're going to, to God, the Beit HaMikdash, because we could shop. Oh, I need one of these. I'll take one of those. But the Olam says the real reason why you're coming over there is to receive shilimut nefesh is in order to receive kirbat Elohim, closeness to God. So therefore, if these people would come to the Beit HaMikdash, then it would look like that all the sick and the infirm come to God in order to get something back from them. So what the Olam says, Adraba. The person reason to go to Yerushalayim is to purify the souls. In order to live a more sanctified life. And therefore only the healthy people and only those that are involved in Olam Ma'aseh, so they're invited and required to come up. Again, it reminds us of a very important Yisod that we shouldn't look uh, at coming to the Beit Knesset as a slot machine. That we come along and uh, we can get uh, benefits and we can get things. We have to come. To, we have to come and humble ourselves in front of Hakadosh Baruch Of course, without a doubt, we'll get the beracha. But that shouldn't be the, the motivation necessarily that we're looking. By other religions, that's the main thing: what they can get from their religion. And by us, it's the opposite. We're looking over here what the religion can give to us. Yom Tov. Rabotai, we continue our study of the Tariag Mitzvot. We are up to the 89th. Mitzvah, and that is not to slaughter the Qurban Pesach on the 14th day of Nisan when we still have Hametz in our possession. It's based on the Pasuk, Lot Tizvah 
Al Hametz Dam Zivhi, which is in Perech of Gimal, Pasuk Yudhet, in the book of Shemot. And the Hanuk learns from here that nobody that is involved in the process of bringing the Korban Pesach is able to have Hametz in their possession. And if they do, they transgress this love. Who does this include? This includes the Shohet, the one that's slaughtering the Korban Pesach. It includes the one that's Zorek, that's actually sprinkling the blood. It also includes the Kohen, that's the Maktir, that's actually bringing the meat on the Mizbeah, the fats on the Mizbeah. And, according to the Chinuch, it includes any member of the Habura, even though he's not actually uh, bringing the Korban per se himself, but since he's part of the Hebra, the Habura as we call it, <clears throat> if he has Hametz in his possession, at the time that they bring the Korban, so he transgresses this love. The Shoresh, the way he explains the logic of it, basically he says is that every mitzvah has its time, and therefore you shouldn't uh, mix times. Once it's the time of Quran Pesach, so now it's the time to get rid of Hametz. So therefore you shouldn't mix the two items, Pesach which represents one concept and the Hametz which represents the other. So therefore he says, <coughs> it makes sense to separate them. Obviously this mitzvah only applies at the time of the Bet HaMikdash. It does apply to male and female as well. Again, female are part of the group, although they can't bring the Qurban per se, but they're part of the group, and therefore if they have Hametz in their possession, they transgress it. Now, the Chinuch does say Chidush over here, that somebody that does have Hametz in their possession, besides transgressing the negative commandment, they are subject to lashes, to Malkut. The Minhat Chinuch does not understand why they should be subject to lashes. After all, leaving Hametz in your possession is an inaction. You're doing something by being passive, and we have a law that says, Lav she'en bo en lokin alab. The Minhat Chinuch leaves it in Sadiq uh, Iyun. He leaves it in abeyance, this question. That is a uh, beautiful piece. Uh, actually, it's a big mahloket between the Sefer HaChinuch, which is, we, we just expounded his opinion, and the Tosafot. The Tosafot is in Masechet Pesachim Dav Samergimah. Tosafot holds that the only one that transgresses this Isud is those that are actually bringing the Qurban themselves. The Shochet, the slaughterer, the one that sprinkles the blood, the one that brings the fats on the Mizbeah. But if somebody in the group has Hametz in his possession, they're not over. So there we have a big machloket between the Chinuch and the, uh, and the Tosafot. I saw from Rav Leiv Malin, the great Rosh Hashiva, Shalom, he explains the machloket as follows. What is the basis of this Isur of not having Hametz in your possession at the time of the Qurban? Is it a law in Hametz or is it a law in the Qurban? So if you say it's a law in Hametz, so therefore everybody in the group is subject to the same laws of not being allowed to have Hametz at that time. But if you say it's a law in the Qurban, so only those that are actually bringing the Qurban will be subject, that will be Tosfot's opinion, and not anybody else. Based on this, the Minhat Hinuch brings a very interesting question. It's a hypothetical, but it's an interesting question as well. He says, let's say you had a Qurban Pesach that you slaughtered on the 14th, 
and you put the meat on the mizbeach. The meat is burning on the mizbeach. Now, I understand normally the meat would just burn right away, but let's say a hypothetical case where there was so much meat and it was just burning on the mizbeach for seven days and seven nights. Keep on burning and burning and burning, and now what? As long as it's in the mizbeach, it's not subject to the psul of lina. Therefore, it has no psul of you know, being left overnight because it's on the mizbeach. Now what? Now Pesach is over. Now Pesach is over and people are bringing Hametz back into their possession. But the Kurma Pesach is still burning on the mizbeach. So the Minhat Venuk has a hakira. Will the people over in such a case where the Hametz is heter now? Because Pesach is over. So based on what we just said from Rabbi Mal and Alav Shalom, we can say it depends how you look at it. If you look at it, that it's a law in the Qurban, so the Qurban is still bringing water on the Mizbayah. So even Hametz of Heter should be subject to the law. But if you say it's a law in Hametz, well, there's no deen of Hametz anymore. Pesach is over. And therefore it should be permissible. Interestingly enough, the Minhat Hinuch asides on the opinion that says that even Hametz of Heter will be Asur, and therefore even after Pesach, if a person brings back Hamid's in his possession legally, but the Qurban is still on the Mizbayah, and the hypothetical case, the Ainuk says that one will still be already not. So we should be Zokheh to be able to fulfill these uh, mitzvot. When the Beit HaMikdash will be rebuilt, Amen Kedinatso. For time, we continue our study of the Tariyag mitzvot, and we are up to mitzvah number 90. Shelo naniyah imurea pesach the law is that we're not allowed to leave the Qurban Pesach, or for that matter, any of the Qurbanot, we cannot leave it off the Mizbeach overnight. As the Pasuk says in Mishpatim in Perich Avgim al Pasuk Yudchet, Velo Yalin, Helev Hagi, Ad Boker. That you're not allowed to take the chalib. The chalib is the fats that go on the mizbeach. So you're not allowed to leave them until the following morning. And the shortest of the mitzvah, the chinuch writes, is because the korban has to be brought in its right time. And therefore, if you neglect and you delay it, so it's showing disrespect to the korban, that you're not interested in bringing it properly, that you're being lackadaisical with it, and you just leave it off the mizbeach. Uh, now, there is a very big distinction over here between a korban pesach regarding this mitzvah and a regular korban. Generally speaking, uh, a person brings a korban, let's say, uh, in the afternoon, and therefore, of course, that's the only time you can bring korbanot during the day, and then you take the imurim. Munim is the fats that go onto the Mizbeach, and you leave them on the Mizbeach for the entire night. That is the mitzvah that we're discussing over here. However, Korban Pesach, we have a technical problem because you cannot bring the fats of the Korban Pesach at night. Why? Because that night is Yom Tov. And when did we slaughter the Korban Pesach? And the law is that animals or korbanot that were slaughtered, behold, during the week, you cannot burn their fats on Yom Tov itself. So therefore, when it comes to korban Pesach, they have to actually burn the fats that day before Yom Tov actually starts. However, there is 
an exceptional case of Qurban Pesah, that the Halakha allows me to actually burn the fats on the Mizbeach on the night of Yom Tov. And that's the case when, let's say, the 14th of Nisan fell out on a Shabbat. So we know if the 14th fell out on a Shabbat, so we slaughter the Qurban Pesach on Shabbat. And now we have a law that says that Qurbanot that was slaughtered on Shabbat, their fats can be put on the Mizbeach on Yom Tov. And therefore, you're going from Shabbat to Yom Tov. So in that case over there, they would actually take the Qurban Pesach and they would put it on the Mizbeach at night. So again, V'davka kishachal yidalad b'shabbat Shechelbez shabbat kerevim b'yom tov Abal en maktirim chelbechol b'yom tov The Hainuch reminds us that if the Qurban Pesach was brought on a weekday he was not allowed to put the Qurban uh, uh, on the Mizbeach at night Why? Because you're making any suit of Yom Tov Now even though it's a mitzvah ta'aseh it says lo yalin, but in this case over here we have a positive and a ne- negative commandment on Yom Tov. So we have a rule that says, aseh doche lo ta'aseh, but en aseh velo ta'aseh doche lo ta'aseh. So therefore in that case over here, let's say it was any person that fell out during the week, and uh, you didn't uh, get the, uh, the, uh, the meat on the Mizbeah before Yom Tov, you're going to be over the Isur. Lo yalin. I want you say, let it be Duhay Yom Tov. It cannot be. Because again, Yom Tov is a Aseh and a Lota Aseh, and there's only a Lota Aseh. So therefore, in that case, one is going to be transgressing the Isud. Now, uh, this mitzvah is no Heget only in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. It applies to the Kohanim, who are obviously male, and somebody that does not bring the Korban in the right time, he does not get Malkut because it's a Lab She'en Bo Ma'aseh. Uh, the rule is that any time a person transgresses a lav that does not have an action, how did he transgress this lav over here? He was passive. He didn't put it on the mizbeah on time. He let it go to the morning. So there's no ma'aseh. Why don't you say that it's no malkut for a different reason? We have a rule that says that any lav that you could fix so therefore does not get a, 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 a malkut. Why don't you say that whatever you didn't put on the mizbeah in the morning, you burn. So therefore it's able to be fixed. Therefore it's a lav and itak. The law is that we only burn regular meat that is fit for consumption of humans. Then the law says, But stuff that's for the Mizbeach is not subject to the law of Sirefa. Therefore, leftovers that were for Korban consumption, for Mizbeach consumption, there's no fix on it. There's no So therefore, it's a lab. So again, the Botai. The mitzvah that we're discussing today is when you bring a korban in the day, you must put it on the mizbeah that night, and you must not leave it until the following morning, unless it's a korban pesah, which is the exception, which the korban pesah must be brought during the day, but you cannot burn its fats at night because it's Yom Tov, and Hall is not pushing away Yom Tov, unless korban pesah was on Shabbat, then the halbe Shabbat is the to Yom Tov, and you would actually put it on the mizbeah. Mutai, we're continuing the study of the Tariyag Mitzvot. We are up to Mitzvah number 91. That's the Mitzvah of bringing the Bikurim. The law is 
that one has to bring the first fruits to the Beit HaMikdash, and those are, of course, the fruits that are ripened. It's based on a pasuk in Mishpatim, Perech Gimal, Pasuk Yotet, Reshit, Bekure Admatecha, Tavi, Bet Hashem Elohecha. Now, it doesn't tell us what type of fruits are obligated. However, the tradition is that it's referring to the seven fruits that Erich Yisrael was praised by. Now, the Sefer HaChinuch wants to understand how the Hachamim knew all it said in the Pasuk was Rishit Bekure Admatecha. How do we know that we're specifically referring to the seven fruits that Erich Yisrael is praised by? So he says, Ki the Torah doesn't mention any other fruits besides the seven fruits of Eretz Israel. Now, which perot is it talking about? Doesn't tell us. So we have to learn the satum mina meforash. We learn what's not written from what's written. And since the only fruits that are written in the Torah are the Zion Minim of Eretz Yisrael, so therefore, Mistama, he says, that's the ones that it's referring to. That's the way he understands the, the tradition. The shortish of the mitzvah, the source or the reason of the mitzvah is, V'nizkor v'neda, in order for us to know and remember, Ki mi'ito baruchu, that everything that we have in this world is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, including the fruits that come from the field. So therefore, how do you show God appreciation that you recognize that everything is from Him? You give back to the Kohanim. When you give back, you're worthy for more beracha. And the fruits will be uh, blessed. Now there's some laws that apply to this. For example... Who gets the Bikurim, the first fruits, the Anshem Mishmar? The Kohanim that are working in the Beit HaMikdash. That week, they divide the fruits among themselves. Secondly, we learned that they have to put it in a vessel. You can't just give the Kohanim the fruits, barely. Number three, we learned that you have to bring it Derech Noi. You have to bring it in a nice way. You don't just throw fruits in a basket and give it to the Kohen. They used to adorn it. They put flowers. Even they would put birds and put it around it. And everybody would try to make it pretty when they presented it. Furthermore... There was a parade and a procession that they would make with the Bikurim. And the people in Jerusalem, when they would see the uh, uh, people bringing the Bikurim come to Jerusalem, they would come out of their stores and greet them. And they would sing songs. And there was a whole procession. Of course, this mitzvah only applies at the time that there's a Beit HaMikdash. And it only applies to male as well. It applies only to the fruits of Eretz Israel from the Torah. However, the fruits of Syria are obligated in Bikurim and Rabbanan. Also, the fruits of Eved Yarden, that's the other side of the Jordan River, Transjordan, is also Hayav Bikurim and Rabbanan. However, this does not apply to the fruits in Chutzla Aretz, and outside of Israel, besides those two places that I mentioned. If somebody does not give the Bikurim, he transgresses a positive commandment. Now, we go back to the original question that we asked, how did the Hachamim know that this is only the seven fruits? So we explained the way the Chinuch learned it. Because those are the only seven fruits that are mentioned in the Torah. So Mr. Matt referring to those. But I saw a beautiful Seforno on the Pasuk that explains like this. He says, from the Pasuk itself, it's much like that. When it says in the Pasuk, Reshit Bikuri Admatecha, Reshit sounds like you have to bring the first fruits. The first fruits means the first fruits that ripen. 
However, that cannot be because the pasuk says bikure, and bikure means what? The first fruits. So why would the pasuk repeat reshit bikure? So therefore, it must be that the first word reshit is not bikure, but the first word reshit actually means what? The choice. And therefore, what's the choice fruits of Eretz Israel? We know that's the seven fruits. So if it's Meduyak in the Pasuk, Reshit, Bikure. The choice fruits, Reshit meaning the Muvharim of the Bikure of the, of the first fruits. Finally, there's a big discussion amongst the Poskim. We know that wheat is one of the seven species of Eretz Israel from the seven Meshubahim fruits of Eretz Israel. But we also know that there's five different subcategories of wheat. Like we know there's wheat, and then there's barley, and then there's uh, spelt, and then there's rye and oats. So there's a big mahlokit amongst the Aharonim. Everybody agrees that wheat and barley is obligated mm-hmm. in Bikurim. After all, it says in the Torah, Eris Chita Usura. The question is, what about the other three subcategories? So I found the Maharsha in Masichet Pesachim on Dafla Midvav, and the Maharsha actually says that those three subcategories are also obligated. They are considered a subcategory of wheat. We know the Barakah on it would be Hamotzi and Berkat Amazon, so therefore it's wheat. However, I did see that the Minhat Chinuch in Sifkatan Aleph brings the Pnei Yoshua that says one would not be obligated in Bikurim on the subcategories. After all, he says, although they're from the wheat genre, but they're inferior. And therefore, since they're inferior, they're not considered Rashid. And therefore, one would not be obligated. So that's a, a separate mahlokat. Of course, the underpinning of this mitzvah would be that when a Kadosh Baruch Hu gives somebody something, you have to give back. Today, we don't have Bikurim. But if a person has something, you give it to Tamit Achamim or you give it to Sedaqah in order to show the appreciation for what and where the Berakah came from. Baruch Olam. Amen. Abotai, we continue the study of the Tariyag Mitzvot. And we are up to mitzvah number 92. And that is the Isur of cooking milk and meat together. The Pasuk says in Parashat Mishpatim, Lo tevashel gedi bahalev immo. Which means one is not allowed to cook the meat of a gedi, which literally is a goat, with its uh, mother's milk. That's in Perech Gimel Pasuk Yutet. Of course, the Gemara says that when it says Gedi, Gedi lav davka. It doesn't mean only a goat. Ela afilu kol basar Gedi is just an example of a meat, but it's referring to all meats. Now the question is, what is the shortish of this mitzvah? Now it's worthy just to review for a minute. This is obviously a hook. The Torah does not give us a reason why milk and meat should be forbidden to cook. However, as we know, the Sefer HaChinuch uh, does offer reasons just in order that we can have a little understanding and connection to all the mitzvot, even the ones that the Torah does not offer reasons to. And uh, he says in this case, very interesting, he says that if you want to understand the rationale behind Basar Bihalab, go look what I said by the Isud of Mechashefa. Mechashefa is magic and witchcraft. Now, at first glance, it seems there's no connection between these two Averot. But if you go back to the lab of Mechashefa, the Hinuch came and told us that Hashem created the world in a certain system and uh, 
everything is in its certain place uh, and has its uh, uh, connection. And when we mix things together, so God forbid we ruin the creation and we do something that could be uh, counterproductive to the creation. So Matt, witchcraft basically is taking different forces that are really not supposed to be together and putting them together in order to subvert or overturn the creation. It's almost like grafting, taking two things that are separate energies and putting them together. If he wanted to do it, he would have done it. And if it's not done, so he says that it could cause danger. So he says, Basar Bihalab is one of those toxic uh, combinations that although each one it's, itself is permissible, but when you put it together, this combination has a negative uh, effect on the bidi'ah. And he proves that it's the connection that they're worried about, the combination, because it's not only forbidden to eat it. Eating it is a separate isur. It's even forbidden just to cook them together and then throw it out. The cooking itself, the mere fact of combining the two is considered a, a, a toxic uh, combination. And therefore, the Torah wants us to keep you know, all these things uh, separate. Now, he quotes Harambam. I guess the Rambam is in the Moreh. And he says that Harambam's reason is, is because there was Ovdeh Avodah Zarah that used to worship Avodah Zarah by putting milk and meat together. So therefore, it's a geder against Avodah Zarah, according to Harambam. The Chinuch, however, comments on Harambam's reason and says, V'chol shoveli. He says that this reason does not have too much value or credence. Now, there's another reason that's brought down by the Ramban. And he says something interesting. He says that the Isura Basar Bechalab is... Uh, based on that the Torah does not want you to be cruel. Like he says, mita'am akzariyut. Because in the pure form of making the Yisru the way the Torah says it, you're basically taking the mother's milk and you're cooking the mother's child in its own milk. Now that's got to be a cruel person to do that. And the Ramban says, even if you take the mother's milk and you go to a different uh, uh, gidi, it doesn't matter. You're taking, you know, the same species and you're killing one and you're cooking it in its milk. So that would be a akzar uh, nature. The Benu Bahya, in his interpretation, says a different reason why basar bechalab should be forbidden. He says that we know the Torah is against eating dam. Dam is uh, the animalistic part. And when we eat dam, it gives us an animalistic nature. Like it says in the Pasuki Hadam, who are nefesh. Nefesh is referring to the animalistic drives. So he says that we also know that the milk of an animal originally was blood. The Gemara says, Dam na'asa halav. That at, when the mother finally gets some milk, that milk originally was blood. And now it's halav, and now it's 100% mutar. However, when you mix the milk back with the meat, the milk goes back and takes its original property of dam. So therefore, the Rabbeinu Ba'ya says, when you're eating basar bechalab, it's actually like you're eating now dam again, because it reverts back. That connection creates the original origin of it. And therefore, it's molid nefesh ra'betocha adam. Basar bechalab would bring a bad nature into the person. Ultimately, the Rabbeinu Ba'ya concedes, like all the Rishonim have to concede, and they all say, Shetaram ha'emet lo yitkale ela la'atid lavo. 
that the real reason is going to be revealed to us only La'atid Avoba Mashiach comes. But nonetheless, in the meantime, the mitzvah is no heget. Bechol makom applies all places, bechol zeman at all times. It applies to both male and female. And if somebody transgressed and actually cooked milk and meat together, even though they didn't eat it, they have transgressed the Isuv the Torah, and they are subject to the punishment of Malkut. After all, this is a love. שיש בו מעשה ברוך אדוני לעולם אמן ואמן רבי חנן אבגאי We continue our study of Tariyag Mitzvot up to number 93 and that is the negative commandment not to make a treaty with the seven nations that inhabited Eris Kena'an and for that matter to make treaties with any idolaters the Pasuk says לא תכרות להם that's in Perech Gimal in Shemot, Pasuk Lamidbet, that we're not allowed to make a covenant and a treaty with those that are worshipping Avodah Zarah. And we cannot allow them to live. The shortish of the mitzvah regarding the seven nations, the Chinuch writes, Le'abed Avodah Zarah Vechol Mesha that we have an obligation to get rid of all of Avodah Zarah and those that serve it. Mina'ulam. Now these seven nations, the Chinook refers to them as Ikar Avodah Zarah, the Yesod Harishon. That these seven nations are considered the Shoresh and the root of Avodah Zarah at its beginning. And therefore, our obligation is to uproot it from the land of Eris Yisrael. And therefore, Nitztavinu lesharesh aharehem, to uproot it, v'le'abed zikram le'olam. Now, the law is extended, says the Chinuch, that we should not make a covenant for that matter with any Oved Avodah Zarana. There is a difference between the seven nations and other nations. Regarding the seven nations, even if they're not fighting against us, we still have a mitzvah to go and root them out and kill them. Uh, and therefore, again, because they're the Yisod, they're the Shoresh of Avodah Zarah. So we have to kill them in any place. Whereas the other nations that worship Avodah Zarah, if they're not fighting against us, there's no mitzvah to kill them. Unless they're living in our land, so then already... We're not allowed to leave them in the land to worship Avodah Zarah. But, again, if they don't come against us, we don't have an obligation to hunt them down. Those that transgress this mitzvah do not get malkut, because, again, by making a treaty and letting the guim live, is considered a lav she'en bo ma'aseh. Now, there is a condition to this mitzvah that if, for example the seven nations accept upon themselves to make teshuvah. So then the law is we even accept them. If they accept upon themselves, this is the proper time to accept teshuvah, sedimit teshuvah. She'im kibbelu al atzmam, shedo la'avod avodah zarah. So therefore we do not have to destroy them and we're allowed to make a covenant. If you look in the Midrash, in Devarim, in Devarim Rabbah, it says that Yehoshua, before he conquered Eretz Yisrael, 
he gave the Ameha Aris an ultimatum. And he said, whoever wants to throw away the Avodah and make peace, as long as you don't worship anymore, we'll accept you and we'll let you live. So you see, according to the Chinuch, that even the Zayin Amim, you're allowed to make a treaty with them, if indeed they accept upon themselves the Shuban. There's a famous story in Tanakh. That was a story of the Giv'onim. The Giv'onim were actually one of the seven nations. And they made as if they weren't. And they dressed up and they disguised themselves. And they made as if they came from a far-off place. Being that they were not one of the seven nations, at least we thought they weren't, they fooled us. So we made a treaty with them and we swore that we're not going to do anything to them, only to find out later on that they tricked us and they actually were the seven nations. Now, at that point, we would have had every right to kill them. Because again, as we learned from the Chinuch, that even if they don't come to fight against us, as long as they're worshipping Avodah Zarah and they're from the seven nations in our country, doesn't matter where they are, we have a right to kill them. So why didn't we kill the Giv'onim? Only because the Nisi'im felt that it would create the Chilul Hashem. Because we gave them our word that we're not going to do it and they didn't want to go back on the word, even though it was under a false pretense. It doesn't matter. The Achamim felt at the time that they didn't want. But you see over there that if it wasn't for the Chilul Hashem, they would have killed them on the spot, even though they weren't coming in war. So here you see the Chinook is correct, that they don't have to come in war, the seven nations. The fact that they're in Eretz Israel and they're worshiping Abu Dazara, and they didn't make Teshuvah, so therefore we're obligated to kill them. In this case, we made an exception only because of the Hadul Hashem factor, and then Yeshua placed them as uh, wood choppers and water drawers for the Mizbeach, and ultimately uh, they would become the exception. But as a general rule, we learn from this mitzvah that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to get rid of the Avodah Zara from the world in order that only there should be believers in one God. Uh, as we said, that when Mashiach comes, obviously it will be fulfilled, like it says, and we are up to number 94. It's a negative commandment that we're not allowed to establish and leave any of their Avodah idolaters in the land. As the Pasuk says, Lo yeshevu be'arsecha pen yachati'u otecha li. Well, the Torah actually gives us the Isur and gives us the reason. that We do not want idolaters living in the land because they will cause you to sin. That's why when the Chinuch gives the reason, he says, The Katuv gives you the reason in this case. We don't want to learn from their uh, denial of God. That is a few mitzvot, a few laws that apply that have ramifications. Number one, while we have to get rid of the Ovdeh Avodah Zarah, we are allowed to accept what's called a Ger Toshav. Ger Toshav is a goy that comes in front of Bedin and he accepts upon himself in front of the Bedin not to worship Avodah Zarah anymore. Such a person 
He's a ger. He has a form of a ger. We'll see what that means. I mean, he's still a goy. But ger means he has some sort of change of his status, it sounds like. And he's able to be a toshav. He can remain a settler in the land. Furthermore, the halakha says that one is forbidden to sell the Ovdeh Avodah Zarah any land in Eretz Yisrael. And furthermore, it's forbidden even to rent them any dirah, uh, any apartment or any dwelling. The reason is, is because if you rent the Avodah Avodah Zarah, he's going to bring the Avodah Zarah into the dwelling. However, Allah says you could rent it to him for business purposes, because in those days they would not bring the Avodah Zarah into the business. Furthermore, Talakha says you're not allowed to rent to three goyim in three consecutive houses in Eretz Israel because we're giving them what's called the Kibi'ut in Eretz Israel, And therefore, we do not want to give them a Kibi'ut. Now, the law applies obviously to male and female as well. And it applies only in Eretz Israel. Somebody went and sold uh, a property to the Goy in Eretz Israel or or rented. He transgressed this Isur over here. The Isur of again, Lo Yeshevu However, there's no Malkut because you could rent it without doing a Ma'aseh. That is a very interesting Harambam in the laws of Melachim. Chapter 8. Halakha Yud Aleph. That when the Ger Toshav comes in front of the Bedin, not only is he accepting upon himself not to worship Avodah Zarah anymore, but he's accepting upon himself the Zayin Mitzvot B'nei Noah. Now, it's not enough, my man, that he's right, to him to accept upon himself the Zayin Mitzvot because it makes sense to him. Or because it's, you know, ethical. Or because it's, uh, you know, moral. He has to accept them because he understands that that's what God told Moshe Rabbeinu, that the Goyim were commanded before Matan Torah to keep the Zion Mitzvot. That means he's keeping the Zion Mitzvot because it's a tzivui of a Kadosh Baruch Hu. So the She'elah that asked Harambam, why isn't it enough just for the Gentoshav to say, okay, I accept the Zion Mitzvot. This whole business over here, that Moshe Rabbeinu commanded it from God before Matan Torah, so according to Rambam, they understand the Acharonim, that he understands that a Ger Toshav is not just a, a, a regular Goy anymore. There is a physical or a, a, a substantial change in the status of a Ger Toshav, which means you have three levels. You have, first of all, a regular Goy. Okay, a regular Goy, that's nothing. Then you have a full-fledged Ger Tzedek. And then you have something in between that's called, according to Harambam, a Ger Toshav. Now, he didn't get to the level of Ger Tzedek, this guy, but again, the fact that he accepted in Bedin, he's not a Stam Goy anymore. Now, already he's considered a Ger Toshav, and therefore, it's not enough that he's going to the Bedin so to publicize the fact that he's not an Obed Awadazar anymore. The reason why you need a Bedin is because just like you need a Bedin for Gerut. This Ger Toshav now is a, what should we say, he's a special Goy now. He's not a regular Goy, because he's fulfilling the, the Zion Mitzvot, Bidin, the Torah itself, which is a, 
a higher level. So such a person, obviously we're allowed to leave in Eretz Yisrael. He's one step from becoming Gertzedek. However, when it comes to leaving other Avodei Avodei the land, it's a suit. The lesson over here is, which applies to us, that we should not live in places that will cause the people to learn from their bad habits. So therefore, one has to live in a good environment. If a person lives next to bad people, like Maimonides writes, you're a product of your environment. So therefore, although we might not have this law today in Eretz Yisrael, but the reason, the logic of the law definitely applies. That if the Torah does not want us to live next to Abu Zarah, because they know that over the course of time, we're going to pick up from their bad habits. So therefore, the Torah says, one must root them out and one must not give them a real estate or give them an apartment or give them any dwelling in the land. And therefore, the lesson, of course, is Harhek Meshachin Ra. Keep away from bad neighbors and do not attach yourself to the Rasha.